Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 5th, 2015, and this is episode 1589 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, your time to call in with your opinion and to ask questions of the expert counsel. This is also going to be a turning point show. I am now ready to move the Survival Podcast into what I feel once again will be another level, another level of quality another level of variety, another level of diversity, and another level of over-delivering what I promise to deliver to you every day, which is education and entertainment and critical thinking and the best information I can get so that you can make your own decisions about your own life rather than being told what to do by somebody that doesn't really know everything about you because I can't know everything about 100,000 people and neither can my experts. My goal from this show from day one has never been to influence the way people think or what people think. It has been to influence how people think. I don't think there's any harm in influencing how people think if you influence it for the positive. And and that's what I try to do. And that's why I've assembled an expert council. That's why I'm willing to say, hey, look, there's things that maybe I can't give you the best answer to. Uh, Maybe somebody else can. Or... Even though I can give you an answer to this that I'm totally comfortable with, I think that you might benefit from a different perspective. Even at times, as you'll hear today, you might get completely different perspectives from two members of the council coming at it from two different angles on the exact same question. I have a cast iron cooking question today for Chef Keith Snow. He did a great job with an answer. I'm going to also link to Paul Wheaton's article about it. It takes a totally different take on how to rehab and use and why and what to do. And I think both both opinions are equally valid. And one may favor what you want to do with your life, and the other may favor uh, what somebody else wants to do with their life. I think that's great. And so I've been working hard over the last year trying to figure out how do I take this listener council thing and get greater participation, greater involvement, greater responses, and more valuable information. And I, you know, in the last few weeks, I've kind of hit on a home run of sending the council members all the questions on Monday in text, letting them answer it, asking the questions on the air on your behalf, whether it's a question I queued up for them or a question that you have that I've simplified. And a lot of times when you guys send me additional information, I send them that. So this is a turn point show. What I mean by that is this will probably be the last show that you'll hear that will be listener calling questions for me and expert council members on the same show. I think we're going to bifurcate in the, when we come back, not next week, because next week I'm off. I'm in West Virginia all week. I won't be here. The following week, there will be both a listener calls question and an expert council uh, show. There will be two different shows. The question for you guys, and I need you to do this if you please can for one time. Please listen to me. Please, please, please give me your opinion about this if you have one in the comments section for today's episode. I'm about to go out of state. I'm going to be completely discombobulated for seven days. Uh, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with people trying to answer their questions and meet with them and give them a great experience that I promised. I am not going to do good with email this week. I'm not going to do good with email this week. I'm not going to do good with email this week. I am sorry. 
if you want to voice your opinion on which day. I think we're going to stick with the Thursday-Friday thing. So we're either going, these are your choices, A and B. It's a democracy, sort of, okay? Democracy choice A is listener council questions on Thursday, Jack answering your calls on Friday, or B, you guessed it, Jack does the listener call show on Thursday, and I do the council calls on Friday. You guys let me know what you want this to be. I think that that, that is going to help me either way. Either way this gets done, it's going to give me one day a week that I can really put a show together quickly for you, even though it takes a lot of preparatory work when it comes to production. It's a pretty quick day. Um, anyway, with that said, before I uh, get to your questions uh, for both myself and the council today, Please uh, give us a moment here and uh, consider taking care of our sponsors because these guys do a lot to help take care of you. They've been supporting me for a long time. My average sponsor, guys, of the Survival average, not just the first, but the average length of sponsorship right now is in excess of four years. I only have one sponsor with less than four years, and they'll have four years, well, this month. Think about that. These guys have been loyal. They've stayed with us from the beginning. So please consider that when you're deciding who to do business with for your prepping needs. And with that, I just want to let you guys know who the sponsors of the day today are. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is, maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it. But you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it. From the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? 
Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have three today. We have number one, the Reverend introduces a nearly open-source machine. We have number two, the Werewolf of Bedrug. Uh, Bedbrug, Bedberg, Bedberg, the werewolf of Bedberg and preserving one's humanity. And number three, we have Henry kills Henry, then Henry is killed in turn, so Henry takes the throne. That's the one I'm going to read, just because I'm feeling weird today, and this is going to be a weird one, and a little hard to follow with so many Henrys. Oh, Henrys. Okay. In the War of the Three Henrys, the King Henry of France has been winning battles against the Huguenots, led by Henry of Navarre who happens to be a Protestant and heir to the throne of France should Henry die, like in one of the, these battles, for example. Henry, the Duke of Guise, who is head of the, of the Catholic League, demands that King Henry annul their heir apparent before something terrible happens to the king. Actually, the Duke wouldn't mind if something terrible happens to the king, but it does. The Duke, but if it does, the Duke wants to be the king, not the Protestant Henry. Since the king is more fearful of the duke than he is of the Huguenots, King Henry has the duke assassinated. Don't feel too sorry for the duke. He was going to have the king assassinated. Then a Catholic monk appears at court with a secret message for the king. Such messages are common, so as he approaches the throne, the king guards step back to give them privacy. The messenger then stabs the king with the dagger. The messenger is killed on the spot. The king dies the next morning. Henry of Navarre becomes King Henry the Fourth of France. Exactly what was not supposed to happen. <sighs> Do you follow all that? My take by Alex Shrugged. This is where it gets worse. If you can believe it, this entire mess was orchestrated by the King of Spain, who was fighting for Catholicism, but wanted France occupied with a civil war so that he could quell the rebellion in the Netherlands without interference. The loss of the Third Spanish Armada made the King of Spain vulnerable. King Henry IV was a Protestant, but he got so much flack for, flack for it as king, after a few years he repudiate, repudiated uh, his Calvinism in order to rule France. <laughs> so... Here we have another lesson. The greatest acts of murder in history are not have not been committed by people that wear orange and live in cells after they get caught. They have been committed by people who did so under the banner of the state on the auspices of legality. And they have ruled us. Once again, I have challenged people, if they want to challenge me on this, and I would love to see somebody take up this task, to make a list of the 100 largest mass killers in humanity. The 100 greatest killers. So, I mean, people on there would be like Adolf Hitler, right? Tamerlane. These would be people that would make the list. Which human beings have been individually responsible for ordering the deaths of the largest numbers of human beings in the history of the world and make a list a hundred people long. And I, I don't know what the list would look like. I know a few people that would make the list. <laughs> But 
here's my bet without knowing the results. Not a single one of them will have acted illegally while they were committing the acts, that they all did so under the banner of legality, under the authority of a state. Think about that before you want the state to do more. Just saying. Anyway, with that knocked out, I want to remind you real quick about the MSB. Consider joining. That's all I have to say about that today. If you like the show, consider supporting it by becoming a member. More information is available at thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there. And uh, let's go ahead and do something a little bit different today. Let's lead off today's show with a couple questions for the expert counsel before I take uh, one for myself. And uh, the first question I have today is for expert counsel member Nick Ferguson, who is on the road uh, and having to call in from a cell phone to do this, but always tries his best to get a response back. And uh, the question for Nick Ferguson is as follows. Nick Zach from Central Missouri says he's noticed uh, a lot of wild grapes along his forest edge. He says they seem to grow with such vigor and almost seem to expand daily along his fence line. He was wondering what ideas you had for grafting these to harness the vitality of this local species, to possibly cross with uh, more productive fruit-making or wine-making grapes. He said he's read a couple of university articles on the topic, but they didn't go into detail on the process or the results. I wanted to get your opinion. So, Mr. Ferguson, what say you on this one? Hey, Zach, this is Nick Ferguson calling in to answer your question on grafting onto wild grape rootstock. Um, I'm going to have to make this short and sweet because I'm calling in for my cell phone. I'm on the road, but I'm really committed to getting you all answers when you call in questions for me. Um, the quick answer is yes, Zach, you can graft uh, domesticated grapes onto wild grape rootstock, and it's really quick and easy. You're going to use a cleft graft. Google it. Look it up on YouTube. There's lots and lots of how-to videos on how to do that. And what you're going to do is you're going to find a one-inch to two-inch piece of uh, rootstock that's, that's growing well, and you're going to cut it off about a foot or two foot off of the ground, and you're going to use a cleft graft to attach your signwood on there, and you can put four or five pieces of signwood onto each one of those grape rootstock sections. And what you're going to do is you're going to tape it on there, and then you're going to cover the top in a good uh, sealant, so like a tree wound sealer or a grafting putty. <clears throat> and you're going to come down below your grafts, and you're going to cut a couple, like two or three little one-inch by a quarter of an inch deep incisions into the, into the bark, and that's going to help relieve sap pressure. Um, that vine is going to be pushing a lot of sap. It's going to be pumping a lot of fluids through there, and you want to relieve a little bit of that pressure so that your cyan wood can, can heal properly. So I hope that helps. That's a, I know it's a really short, uh, to-the-point answer, but um, give it a shot. Do a whole bunch of them, even if you only have a 10% success rate. You know, if you do 100 of them, that's, that's quite a few grapes. So give it a shot. Let us know how it works for you. This has been Nick Ferguson with the Expert Council calling in to answer that question. I wish you good luck, and I'll talk to you later. 
So Nick is on the road with a consulting gig, and he's immediately then going to Perma Ethos for next week. So uh, I understand the brevity of that answer. The important answer, uh, the part, important part of the answer for the the person asking the question, and for all of us that might run into wild grapevines, is yes, you can do it. It works. Uh, and then learning how to do it is is uh, is worth doing. So no one wants to go out and spend time trying to do something that's never going to work. So if the question had been, can I graft an apple onto an oak tree? The answer is no. And then that way you know it's not that the, the you're doing a bad graft, but you're trying to do something that doesn't work. Now what I did, I went on YouTube and, and took a little bit of effort, and I found some really good videos on cleft grafting more for production grapes, like so they're much closer to the same size material and stuff like that, uh, where wild grapes usually have big, thick uh, vines, and that's what Nick was talking about. I found one set of videos that's pretty good at showing you how to do this. It's shot with an iPhone, and it's a person that doesn't know that you're supposed to turn your iPhone sideways. When you shoot a video, you people that shoot videos vertically with your iPhone, I don't know why you do this. It is one of my pet peeves, if you can't tell. Uh, anyway, and it's also very windy and a little hard to hear, but... It is the best set of videos I can find on doing this for grafting onto existing large vines. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to parts one and part two of that video so you can uh, check them out there. Uh, with that, let's take another question for an expert council member. This one for Brian Black from ITS Tactical. He's not just a council member and a TSP supporter and community member, but one of my personal best friends. I have a question for Brian from Andrew. Andrew wanted to ask... Uh, what Brian would recommend for everyday concealed carry handgun flashlights to be paired with a handgun, not a handgun mounted light. And separately, what would you recommend uh, for a mounted light on a 12 gauge shotgun or AR-15? Also, do you think you should use batteries as the the CR what the C123 batteries or double A's? Uh, so, uh, what do you, what say you, uh, Brian, on on that idea or that concept? So that, Brian, now what do you recommend uh, for our listener here, Andrew, on uh, those two questions involving tactical lights? Hey, TSP, this is Brian Black with a expert counsel question from Andrew. He wanted to know about everyday carry uh, handheld flashlights and also a question about uh, mounted lights for a shotgun or AR-15. So, uh, Andrew, thanks for the question. Um, I personally carry a... Um, I prefer actually a 4.7's Prion P1, and I like that for a daily carry flashlight. Um, my only hiccup is I wish that it had a, a clicky cap in the, in the back instead of the bezel. Um, but I do like that light quite a bit. I carry it on a daily basis. Um, another great one to look into is a Surefire backup light. Um, you also asked a question about batteries, which is a, a important consideration when it comes to flashlights. So. Um, I personally prefer lights with AA or AAA batteries. Actually, I lean more towards AA, um, but even that, even AAA over 123 batteries, um, just because they're more readily available, you can pick them up pretty much anywhere, even overseas. So that's a great consideration when it comes to batteries. Um, for a mounted light on a 12-gauge or AR-15, um, I don't typically run a flash on a 12-gauge, so I don't really have a lot of comments on that, but I know that Surefire makes a lot of light attachments for the, the forend of a shotgun that you can replace. Um, but I prefer a Surefire Scout light on my AR, and I also like a, uh, a push cap or a clicky cap on that as well rather than a tape switch. So hope that helps, and thanks for the question. Uh, I, I agree a lot with what Brian had to say. I, I don't personally carry the 4.7's light, but I know it has a great um, 
track record and a lot of good thoughts about it, and it's it's a good overall light. Um, as far as the weapons mounted light, I also prefer to have a push button type situation, and I also like a light to be able to be something that I can I can actually use the pressure switch to turn it on and and let go and have it stay on, or use a slight less pressure and not fully actuate it, and either uh, strobe it manually. Uh, or just you know check a spot and, and let off without having to fully ac activate the switch. And um, most of the Surefire stuff does allow you to do that. I've got a link in the show notes today to the 4.7's Prion 1, and I also have a link to kind of just an assortment of the uh, Surefire tactical weapons-mounted lights that, uh, that Brian was recommending, uh, so you can take a look at those. My personal view of weapons-mounted lights is I think they're a great idea in long guns, and that's why I like this question. I do not like a weapons-mounted light on a handgun. Um, it, it's just a different type of situation that you're in, and one of the primary advantages of a handgun in a self-defense situation is the mobility and the ability to, to not have to have that, 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 that whole system integrated Uh, I think is really important. And the other issue that I have is I'm always concerned with carrying, if I'm carrying concealed, to make sure that I make that weapon as concealable as possible. And I don't ever want to have the need, because I want a flashlight to pull out my gun. I want those two, two independently and separated. And it also gives me another advantage. If I'm in a, a, a conflict-type situation, I can remove the light which doesn't seem to be that big of a threat unless it's a 3D cell mag like, like we talked about last week. And I can actually you know, blind that perpetrator or that aggressor with the light. And I can actually draw my weapon if I feel I need to without them realizing that that's occurred. There may be times I actually want to draw down on somebody uh, with them blinded and not have them know that they actually have a firearm trained on them. Um, that, that actually gives me another level of tactical advantage. And, of course, I can move the light away from my body if they charge me, so they charge empty space. If I do that with my weapon, I put my weapon into a vulnerable position. So I like the two-handed approach with the light. So I, I, I really like Brian's take on this. I also completely agree on the batteries. Um, I would go double A over one, two, three. And I would go triple A over one, two, three, and I would go double A over triple A. Um, if you ever get into a scavenging situation, I want you to think about this. You know all those little solar lights that everybody buys for a couple bucks from Walmart right now? Not the best batteries, but generally do have some level of charge in them. Every single one of those, if you pull them apart, guess what's in there? A double A battery. A double-A battery. And what I've done with some of the ones we have around the property, in case they're ever just last-ditch needed as a source of power, I've put better quality rechargeable double-A's in those lights. Um, and that's just a little tidbit to add there. Um, with that, I want to answer a question for me. I'm going to go ahead and play that question now, and I'll come back and give you my answer to it. Hello, Jack. This is Scott in Missouri. And uh, I have an interesting and unique opportunity. Uh, my wife and I are getting ready to build on our uh, 20 acres out here and are working with architects and really being uh, very deliberate about, uh, you know, the design of the house and how it fits into our overall uh, plans for the property. Um, wondered what you would, you know, look to do uh, if you were, say, starting from scratch, designing a home 
for the long term uh, from scratch and what kind of elements you would consider. Um, you know, obviously we're working with, you know, solar aspects and, and topography and, and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, what are some, you know, systems or, or, or things to consider maybe uh, that, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily uh, maybe just, you know, come to uh, off the top of your head? Um, anyway, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I don't think we've I've heard much about it. Uh, you know, designing uh, with a permaculture mindset in, in, in mind and uh, designing a home. So, anyway, I appreciate what you do. Thank you. Bye. Okay, um, here's the deal. Like, that is a huge decision, and there's a lot that I think needs to go into it. And I could probably do several shows on, you know, designing homes from scratch and thinking about ecological impacts and energy efficiency and things like that. When it comes to deciding things like construction materials, like you know, standard construction or SIP panels or poured concrete or earth contact or something, I think that's a decision that has to be made a lot by you yourself. Um, some of the ways that I would, and I think that all of this has to really be made by you, but I can give you some ideas about things that would be important to me if I had the opportunity to build a house from scratch, thinking about the fact that I'm sitting in a house right now. I love the property. I like the house. There's a lot of things I would have done differently with the design of this house. There's some things I really like about it and some things I really don't like about it. Uh, one thing I would say is no one ever says, gee, I wish my kitchen was smaller, and no one ever says, gee, I wish my living area was smaller. I think that giving a, a good amount of space to those two areas from a floor, just a pure floor plan uh, uh, design makes a lot of sense. Since you're doing it from scratch, things are custom anyway. No 10-foot by 10-foot bedrooms. Um, always have, see, instead of just like, how do I make this house energy efficient and all, always have an exit strategy, right? Whenever you put money into a home, you should always be thinking, there could come a day where I have to sell this house, even if I love it, it's my forever home and I don't want to, and I want to be able to make this this thing marketable. I think secondary bedrooms, minimum size 11 by 12, because there's so many 10 by 10s and 10 by 11s. And that couple extra feet doesn't cost much in construction if you're already designing from scratch. Um, a lot of custom homes, or I mean, like turnkey homes, you, the, the production models that are designed that way, if you want to change that, you might as well just go custom. Add a foot, oh my God, the world's ending. Um, but those 10 by 10 and 10 by 11 bedrooms, when parents think about their children and all the stuff kids have today, whether you think they should have it or not, they're like, nah, it's kind of small. Um, so I would really look at going at minimum uh, 11 by 12 with your bedrooms and 12 by 12 being better. That's a good size secondary bedroom. Another thing people never say is, I wish my master bedroom was smaller. So good size master bedrooms, 14 by 16. I know the tiny house movement's big and all. Hey, you're building a house. So those are just some thoughts there that put some space into those areas. Um, at least two bathrooms in any home being built. So again, I'm still, I'm not even into the permaculture side of things. I'm not into the ecologically friendly side of things, stuff like that yet. I am right now just on, I want this major investment to have high marketability should I ever need to exit it. And those, those things, and I would look more toward four than three bedrooms. If you had, now, all of this is contingent upon budget. I would go from, before I made the room smaller, from what I just said, I would go with three bedrooms before four bedrooms and smaller rooms. A lot of people are happy with a three-bedroom house, but most people are not happy with a tiny kitchen, tiny master bedroom, little bitty rooms for their kids, and one bathroom. 
So those are the marketability components. The next is location, not of just the house, but of the rooms in the house. Your southern-facing component of the house should be designed in a way that the sun gets in in the winter when the sun is low. But it it doesn't really favor allowing uh, the solar energy in when the sun is high in the sky in the summer because it make your house too hot. So that that's just a, a design consideration. And then a lot of times that's not just like you can have the same house elevation or the way the house appears to look from the front, the front elevation. And where you sit the house on the land's elevation can change whether or not you get that result. So think about placement in regards to that as well. The next thing is I think that you need to think about, okay, where are my hot sectors in this home and where are my cool sectors in this home? I want my bedrooms in my cool sectors. I want my coldest rooms in the house to be bedrooms. Because generally, we sleep pretty good, a little bit cold, if we cover up. But we sleep miserable if we're hot, and flatly, you can only get so naked. And there's a point at which, if you're hot, taking off clothes actually starts to make you worse, right? You get out from other covers, you take the clothes off, you have nothing to wick, perspiration off you sit there with sweat in your neck you're miserable so locate your your sleeping areas and you know north side and northeast uh corners is probably best because you still get a pretty good solar radiation on the west side of your house if you're going to use a room as an office like i do you know my office is in the room that makes the most sense logistically for me but it does get kind of warm in here Because I am on the, you know, I'm on the, the, the southwest or the northwest corner of the house. So I get that western sun beating on the house late in the day. I'm usually done working by late in the day. Uh, and I, I took that over the, the other office that I could have taken is the one Dorothy has. And that is the, 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 the southwest facing corner. But both of them are kind of on the right side. Our bedroom is on the, east side of the house with the window facing south. This actually works well for us. It's one of the things I like because there's a lot of tree shade there. There's a big garage that provides shade. And it's a good area for your your bedroom because by the time you get to the real heat of the day, the sun's hitting the other side of the house. So always try to think that way. There's different philosophies on kitchens. Some people believe you are only in the kitchen to cook. You're going to use heat in there anyway, so it makes sense to locate the kitchen Toward the side of the house, it's going to be naturally a little bit hotter anyway. You're going to want to put extra cooling in there and stuff, so why not put that there? Um, sooner or later, something's got to go there. So the kitchen kind of makes sense with that. It creates heat. Um, and an open-designed kitchen on the south-facing side of a home that naturally collects heat, especially in the winter, while the kitchen itself is also creating heat, can help offset the overall cost of heating the home. So that makes a lot of sense. And then it allows you to kind of pull back the living area toward the, the, the south side of the house so that the area of the house you spend a lot of time in is in a cool sector. And then that's another thing that's nice about the way this house is built. If you design an exit to the rear of the home on the southern side of the house with a covered porch, you have an area on the back side of your home that's almost always shaded as an outdoor area which you spend more time outdoors, especially barbecuing, cooking, socializing, etc., in the warm time of the year when the shade will be very, very appreciated. It does make for a cold area, 
certainly in the in the uh, the winter time, but we generally spend less time out in the winter time in the cold, and the sun's only going to make you so warm in that situation anyway. We can always design what we call like I think Ben Fall calls it like a human cooker, right? A person cooker. Uh, so on the the south facing side of the home, we can also design kind of a recreational area or a porch or maybe even a balcony or something like that that allows the the sun to hit you in those winter months, so you can go out there and socialize and get that sun when it's available. These are some of the many many things that I would think about. Think about the overall flow through the home. One of the things you can really do is go to model homes and open houses and Houses that are just any house you don't have to bother a real estate agent because if you bother a real estate agent you're not buying that's not cool but usually there's model homes and developments and things like that go see as many houses as you can and take a notebook in there and write down on one side of the paper love and on the other side hate don't even worry about what you kind of like you're going to figure that out as you go write down everything you love about a house and everything you hate about a house and don't design any hate in your home I mean I know that sounds like Overly simplistic, but you see people do it. Like they, they, like, oh, I hate this. Well, where'd you, why'd you buy this home? Well, we built it. Well, why'd you build it with something you hate? And they're like, well, I didn't know I hated it when I built it that way. Oh, I see. So you didn't spend enough time research. And I don't want to be picking on anybody here, but what, what that means is you didn't spend enough time researching the layouts of homes before you committed to something that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. So go to as many homes as you can, and when you walk through an area and you go, I don't like the way this pinches, right? And this is why model homes are good. Model homes have furniture, so that creates pinch points where you wouldn't realize if there was no furniture in there, there was a pinch point. So those are my ideas for now. I know I didn't say a lot about solar panels and hot water, and this is stuff I think you really have to look at your budget and decide what your priorities are. To me, the structure is critical. Because you're going to live with that. I can always add a solar panel five years from now. I can always add solar hot water five years from now. You know what's hard to add five years from now? Where my kitchen's located. How big my bedroom is. Think about bathrooms, too. And people tend to build the house with a nice master bathroom. And the second bathroom, nice master bathroom. And the second bathroom, they build these little hallway bathrooms. Just put a couple more feet on the house and put a couple more feet in the bathroom. Right, Create separation points. And one of the biggest things you can do to help, especially with your kids and with your marital life, is design your bathrooms where the commode, the toilet, is in kind of its own little area and has a door. That way when somebody's taking a leak or a poo and doesn't want to be bothered by anybody else, the sink for brushing teeth and stuff is still available. Where if somebody's sitting on the throne in the center, of the, and that's one of the things I don't like about this house, it's almost impossible to fix too with a redesign. Right, you, 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 you open a door and there's somebody doing their business. Um, especially when you have kids and you don't have multiple enough bathrooms for everybody to have their own bathroom. This is a little bitty thing that we just think a little bit more about how the house is designed, put a little nook in and a little door in, and then we separate the functions of you know brushing one's teeth, brushing one's hair, doing one's hair, or whatever you know folks do in a, in the kind of community area of a bathroom where you don't have to be alone. And if that also is designed so that it even closes off the shower 
And that's a great way to design a bathroom. You design a bathroom so that's kind of like you come into a common area and then there's a door. Behind the door, you could even have the tub, shower, and the, the commode all in one little sequestered area. Generally, you know, speaking with kids especially and brothers and sisters and all sharing a bathroom, one does not go in there when one is involved in one of those other activities. So it frees up. You know, for especially with you little girls that are getting all into the stuff, either the hair dryer, the hair curlers, the makeup, whatever the heck they're doing. And it, well, my girl is three, and she doesn't do that yet. She will turn into a teenager, and nothing you do will prevent the vanity of the female species. In some levels, it should be encouraged. It's good to feel good about yourself. So accept that that's going to happen, and create that separation. It will make your life better. Anyway, I know that was a long answer. This is a complicated question. And uh, with that, let's take another question for an expert panel member. Uh, I have a, a question for expert panel member Gary Collins. Uh, Gary, of course, is the founder of the Primal Power Method. And uh, my question for him is uh, kind of a unique one. I want Gary to discuss with you guys today the importance of emotional, spiritual, and mental health. I think these are largely the same thing based on your individual beliefs. So what I might call spiritual health, someone else might call emotional health. Um, but to me, clarity of mind and an acceptance of what you can and can't influence and taking time to just relax, walk, meditate, etc. is important. Exercise is great. We should all do it. But slowing the hell down, clearing our minds, and not being controlled by things that we have no influence on has been key to my personal transformation as an individual. Gary, can you expand on these thoughts? I, I think this is a really important and, and critical question for a lot of people. Creator of the Primal Power Method. And today I want to discuss something a little different on the health and nutrition side. And I want to start it off with a quote from Albert Einstein. Any intelligent fool can make things bigger and more complex. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. I love that quote because it is literally what the primal power method is all about. It's simplification of your life and in everything I do and I teach, that is the main emphasis. You cannot obtain optimal health without you know, simplifying all the complexities of life today. And it took me, you know, several decades to figure this out. And it's a, you know, something that you always have to work on. And it takes a long time. So you can eat properly, get the proper exercise, you know, uh, do everything you're supposed to do. But if you're not focusing in on your mental health and basic enjoyment of life, it's not going to work at all. Uh, I've, I've worked with clients and we get everything straightened out far as they got a great exercise program. They have, you know, they're eating everything I'm telling them to and they still have health problems. They still have relationship issues and all these things compound themselves and actually, uh, you know, deter them from actually being healthy and happy. So I always tell people and uh, clients that you need to take a whole look at your life and figure out how you can simplify, how you can get some, get a break. I mean, we all need timeouts to where, you know, we don't have, you know, wake up to the alarm clock, bang, you know, beep, 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 
hustle, hurry, you know, turn on the news, the world's ending, everything's, you know, crap. And then we get in our four-wheeled box and we fight traffic and we listen to the radio telling us the world's going to end and it's all crap. We get to work, we sit in a, you know, in, in a little cubby hole, you know, we get our little breaks and we stare at a screen and we're miserable. Then we get in our box, we fight traffic, we listen to the radio, the world's going to end. We get home, we deal with all this, it's all these outside stressors. And one day I'm going to write an article about uh, epigenetics and discuss how outside factors actually influence our health. But uh, with that, it's very powerful. And what I think is a very important lesson for all of you, and I know Jack has talked about it a lot, is creating quiet time, uh, peace of mind time. And I've done this over a long time. I consider my gym time my mental therapy is what I call it. You know, I go in there, I tune out, I try not to talk to anyone. Some people think I'm kind of a jackass at times. But when I'm in there, that's my time. It's like, hey, I'm here to focus in, clear my mind. I just want to get some exercise and tune out. And I, you know, I do that, you know, four or five times a week. I go on bike rides and I just blank out and I just don't think of anything. And with that, I also use walks. I walk every evening at least once a day for 30 minutes to an hour. And that, again, is my peaceful time. And I teach my clients that. Not only is it a great way to kind of meditate and get away from everything and make sure it's not on a busy street where chaos and all kinds of honking horns, try and get a place where it's quiet and get away. Uh, I know it's hard at times if you live in a congested city, but, you know, maybe try and get to the park or whatever. And, you know, with that, it just kind of rejuvenates me. You know, it gives me an ability to kind of clear everything out. And I want to go into a topic of mindfulness. Mindfulness is about enjoying the moment, not concerning yourself about past or future events that you cannot control. And humans are terrible at this. We, we literally beat ourselves up over things that are either have already happened or may possibly happen, but we don't even know. And we stress ourselves out. And with that, when we stress ourselves out, that's a natural survival mechanism that kicks cortisol and also, uh, you know, a lot of other hormones to include adrenaline. And these are survival mechanisms for us to get away from prey, to tune up for war or whatever, battle, uh, hunt, things like that. Um, our problem today is that we basically release cortisol all day long, high levels, higher than we're ever intended to cope with. Adrenaline, we drowned ourselves with caffeine, and it basically is aging you faster. Um, it's not that you want to cut, you know, adrenaline and, 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 you know, epinephrine and cut those out. You don't want, those are, like I said, survival mechanisms. You need those. But what we've done is we just get a constant dose of them all the time, which gives us adrenal fatigue, wears us out. Again, aging more quickly, inability to sleep, inability to repair, it, it ruins our relationships. So make sure you take some part of every day as a timeout. And I'm a big fan of days of no media, no cell phone, no email, just cut it out. Last year, I spent four months without cable, uh, television, I didn't watch any television, it was mind-blowing. I, I couldn't believe the clarity I had, um, but being a big sports fan, I, I can't get away from it. But, 
you know, I hope that helps and just make sure schedule it in. If you don't schedule it in, it's not going to happen. I, I think that's just a fantastic answer, and I love the quote at the beginning of it. And I'd like to thank Gary for his contributions to helping this entire audience, honestly, with the times he's been on the show and the work that he does, live a healthier lifestyle. And I think that mental health, spiritual health, emotional health is something that's very, very overlooked. And it's interesting that some of his advice was exactly the same advice as I gave on a show earlier this week on developing mental sovereignty. And I can tell you for a fact that when Gary answered this question, he actually had not heard that show. So those are two totally independent um, opinions on, on that come up to the same way from a, t a different take but the same aspect. I have to tell you that I think it's great that I lost about 90 pounds off my frame. I think that is a huge part of me being a healthier person today. But I think that the mental clarity and the reduction of stress by living, leaving corporate America is probably more uh, responsible for the fact that I will not have a heart attack by the time I'm in my 50s um, than the fact that I've lost the weight. I think that a lot of the emotional improvement and, and mentality is a big part of why I lost a lot of the weight, too. Um, I remember having conversations with Neil, uh, my old business partner, after I had left. And he would just call me for some advice, you know, just friendly advice. And I was so wrapped up into something that no longer really affected me that I would get off the phone and think, I have to quit. I have to quit this. I can't be doing this anymore. This is not for me. And then I would realize, dummy, you quit like a year ago. This doesn't affect you. He just was asking you for advice. And if he had called me to ask me for advice, let's say on something that I had never been connected to, a company, let's say he had started a new company, I wouldn't have felt that way because I had a personal vested interest for so long in that activity. When something wasn't going right, it would stress me out. And I thought to myself, how much worse must this have been when you were part of it? So not everybody can, you know, create a podcast in their car and, and, and create their own business and, and have a, a better uh, emotional state because they're not part of corporate America anymore. I, I wish all of you could do something like that. I, that's why I teach business development as part of a survival strategy. But even if you're going to have a job, there's a difference between having a job and a toxic job. And if you have a toxic job, something that makes you not the husband you're supposed to be, not the father you're supposed to be, There's two things that are possible. One, you're in a, you're working with a company or for a company that you shouldn't be. You need to find just something else. Or you have taken on responsibility and promotion that's beyond what you really want. And you actually would be better off taking a career step backwards. There's an old saying in business that people are pointed, uh, uh, are promoted into their high, uh, their lowest level of incompetence rather than their highest level of competence. And what that means is people work their way up the corporate ladder, and their last promotion, the one they end up staying in for most of their career, um, is the one where they're not really quite good at it and not really quite right for it, but they're better than everybody else the company had to pick from. And they're there now, and it's easier to leave them in place than get rid of them. And they, of course, don't want to leave because it's more money and what have you. Um, and it's not an insult when I say high, lowest level of incompetence, but it is just a reality and it's not maybe incompetence and that's kind of the joke in the business world but it's just what you want it's just what you want people take promotions that they really don't want um i've seen this with my brother-in-law who's a police officer um that turned it was just awesome that he was willing to do it four times turned down promotions because he said that's not what i want 
That's not what I want. And today he's a lieutenant, but he's back on the streets in patrol as a lieutenant, which is what he actually loved about his job. Uh, and by turning down promotions that, you know, by now he might be looking at, honestly, assistant chief had he taken some of those other promotions, but he's a lot happier. Uh, I, I don't think he's completely happy with, you know, being a police officer at all times. I think that's a tough job, but I think he'd be a hell of a lot more miserable if he had been forced into desk positions that he didn't want. And it's something as, as you younger guys are coming up, you know, your 20s and your early 30s and stuff, and so ambitious to go to next level and next level and next level, think about it, because exactly what I did was advance myself into misery. I really did. I got beyond what I really wanted to do. And uh, some other thoughts about that in another call later today. But the next question I have is actually for Tim Glantz. And Tim, I was looking at your website, and I was looking at some of the stuff you have available, and I think one of the coolest things that people can get their hands on right now are the old-school M67 immersion heaters. And some guys are going, I know what that is. And some people are going, what the hell's an M67 immersion heater? It sounds like an Imodium P32 explosive space modulator or something. No, the immersion heater, uh, and you sell these on your website to explain to people what they are, what did the military do with them and use them for, and we can get them now, like, almost unused in the crate some of them from you for a song what can we do with them why would we want an m67 immersion heater it's not to blow up the earth it is to do what mr glance hi everybody this is tim glance with the expert council answering one of jack's questions today and jack asked can you tell us about the m67 immersion heaters that you sell what they are how they work what the military did with them and what we can do with them. The easiest way to describe an M67 immersion heater is it's a fuel-fired heater that will run off uh, liquid fuel like diesel, kerosene, or gasoline, or anything similar that is designed for heating a large quantity of water in a short time. It is a fuel tank with a drip valve that sits above the water, and it drips the fuel down a tube which goes to a burning chamber which is actually suspended under the water, obviously waterproof so water doesn't get into the burning chamber. Then there's an exhaust pipe that comes back up the top. And it will bring a 55-gallon drum of water to boil pretty quickly. The military used them for field sanitation purposes, primarily for field uh, mess sections where they would clean up all the uh, cooking equipment and also uh, the individual soldiers would use them to wash their mess kits because keeping your mess kit clean if you're eating off it every day it is extremely important. If you don't wash that thing even once, you might end up getting very, very sick. They're uh, very handy for that purpose, but the military did declare them obsolete about 15 years ago, and they replaced them with a whole totally different system, as well as getting rid of mess kits since MREs don't require them. What can we do with them? Anything where you would need hot water, you can do with them. Sanitation is a big one. A lot of people in their preps do not pay enough attention to long-term keeping clean and sanitation. Washing your cooking gear and washing yourself and washing your clothes. If you don't keep clean, you're going to get sick. going to happen. Uh, I've had a lot of customers get them for warming stock tanks where they water their cattle, especially if they live up north. They'll either use it to keep it from freezing or use it to thaw them. I've had customers install them with uh, exhaust just like they would a wood stove in their greenhouse, then heat a stock tank, about a 200-gallon, 250-gallon water tank in the middle of their greenhouse. You go in before a cold night, 
where it's going to be below freezing. You fire that thing up, it gets that hot water nice and hot, and by the time it runs out of fuel, you've got a big, huge tub of hot water that'll be a heat sink and radiate heat all night long in that greenhouse. Keep it from freezing. I've done that myself with them. It works extremely well. Makes it very humid in there, but depending on what you're growing, that can also be a good thing. I've had customers get them for processing uh, butchered animals. Uh, if you're doing hogs, depending on your method, you may need to scald them with hot water. Doing uh, poultry, waterfowl, I've sold a lot of them for that. I've had customers get them for processing biodiesel where they use it to boil the water out of the vegetable oil. I'm not very comfortable doing that myself, sticking a live flame burner inside a tub of something that's flammable, but they've had good luck with it. So many uses for these things that you can do. Um, I've even had guys make a hillbilly hot tub with them out, you know, way out where there's no electricity. But with all that, and as great as they are, here's the bad news. I'm out of them. We've been out about 18 months and have not been able to find any more. As I said, the military declared them obsolete. And when they did that, they sold off the rest of the remaining reserve inventory. That's what we've been selling off, and they're gone. I'm looking for some. I'm hoping to find some. But in this business, it's, it's hit or miss. You never know. And I'm at the whim of what the government decides to turn loose, uh, which is a great great thing to point out here if you are messing with government surplus and you see something you want buy it when you see it because it may be gone this is this is unlike any other business out there we don't have a steady supplier where we can sit down and order the government doesn't care how badly i want some more of those immersion heaters they're going to sell them if they sell them and they're no not if they're not so if you see surplus you think it might be a good thing to have buy it when you see it that said, if you want to follow and see if we get some more, if I get more, they will be on our website. Um, we will be, we do put any changes in stock for big things like that on our Facebook page. If you're a Facebook user, definitely follow us. But the best way to be sure, sign up for our email mailing list because that will be where first notice goes out. Uh, there's a couple ways you can do that. Uh, the easiest way, I've got it set up now where if you just text the word GROUCH, G-R-O-U-C-H, to 22828 uh, it'll sign you right up it'll send you an email uh, text back asking for your email address and you will be signed up or if I can get it all working here I will send Jack a link to put in the show the show notes where you can sign up and uh, we don't sell your information or spam it or anything else like that but anytime we have new deals or changes in stock come in they get they go out there and if we find any inversion heaters that'll definitely be the first and most reliable way to know about it Thanks for the question, Jack, and uh, if any of you out there see one of these heaters somewhere else other than me, hey, buy it. Having hot water without electricity and having it in big quantities is a huge, huge thing that uh, you can do so much with, and it's definitely worth having around your homestead. Thanks for the question again, Jack, and uh, thanks for the new format. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really learning a lot, and I hope everybody else is enjoying it. So Tim gave some bad news there. I was just looking on his site, and I have one of these from him. And I saw it in, like, the, the list, but I didn't click down to the details because I already knew about it. So when I asked the question, I thought you guys would be able to get some of these. Um, that's why I asked it because I really love having mine, and I am going to put in a greenhouse soon, and I think I'm going to have multiple methods of heating in there, and this will be one of them. I think there's a lot that this this brings to the table, and I like that you can just kind of basically figure out how long it'll burn based on how much fuel you give it, 
And that's like a timer. I can say, well, I want this thing to go for an hour. I give an hour's worth of fuel uh, or 15 minutes worth of fuel for that matter. And when it runs out, it goes out. And then I have the residual heat. So I can determine how long do I need to heat a greenhouse with a couple ounces of gasoline. I know it's not eco-friendly, but for what it does, and by using the water as a heat sink and then having residual till the end the next day, and in my climate, I won't have to use it that often, but the fact that it's there can save me a lot of grief in losing plants and, and cuttings and things like that that I might be overwintering in a greenhouse. So that's my primary use for it. There's a lot of other things they do. Okay, so that was the bad news. So here's the good news. Um, I went out, especially when I heard Tim at the end say, hey, man, if you can find it anywhere, buy it. I, I didn't, wouldn't think he would say anything else uh, other than that. He's not going to tell you not to buy somebody else's product just because he doesn't have it in stock and he, you know, he may never get these in stock again. I have found the immersion heaters for you. I have not found them with, unfortunately, somebody that we work with, but I did find them at Billings Army Navy. Uh, I don't know anything about this company, but they at least have some. And they are $150. The bad news there is if you could have got them from Tim when they were available, they're about $90. Bucks. They're $150 bucks if you get them with the crate, and they'll take $10 off if you don't get the crate with them. I'm going to recommend you get the crate. I think you can find $10 worth of use out of the wood the crate is built out of. Um, and if you want to store them, well, what better way to store them than in the crate that they come in? These are well packaged in that crate. You know it's going to arrive. I think it's totally worth the 10 bucks. So I do have a link in today's show notes where you can get them. I also have a link to the notification list that Tim mentioned in his call. Next, I have another expert counsel question for someone that I think you're going to be like, wow, he's on the council now? Yes, he is. Jeff Lawton himself has agreed to join our expert council. I have a feeling with all this globe trotting and things like that, we may hear from him twice a month instead of once a week, but that's okay. The question I have for Jeff is on Jute Mallow. I first learned about Jute Mallow from Jeff um, when he was on the show a long time ago, several years ago. And he told me about it, and I managed to get some seeds. Now you seem like you can get them from anywhere. I got them from France. It took, like, so long to show up that I didn't remember what they were, and they had the botanical name, and I, I had to look it up and go, oh, yeah, that's what that is, little weird blued seeds. Well, I planted it on my property here in Texas, and now it's naturalized. It self-reseeds. I have it every year. I don't ever have to do anything again. I harvest buckets of seed from it to give away now. But I don't know much about cooking it and preparing it and using it because it's just not something common in America. I use it in some salads. I use it in some sautéing. But frankly, I get more than I can use. I want to know about how I can store it for use later. Uh, what can I cook with it? And a little bit of history on this plant because it's something I don't have to do anything to grow. And I know in other parts of the world, it's considered a staple crop. So, Jeff, what can you tell us about jute mallow? Hi, Jeff Lawton here, and the uh, question I'm answering is in relation to how do you cook jute mallow, or the Latin name for that is Cocorus oleotaurus, which is in Arabic, and the most common name is uh, Molochia. It's also called salad mallow in uh, English. It's the uh, highest green leaf potassium in the world, food of the pharaohs, and one of the most sentimental crops for the people of the Middle East, all the way out through North Africa and right the way down the East African coast past Sudan to Tanzania. It's grown as a, um, a leaf crop and a main crop because it can be dried and stored and then uh, re 
moistened and uh, cooked out of season. It needs a very high temperature to germinate. You usually have to be close to midsummer or nearing summer to germinate. Uh, fantastic crop. And um, it's uh, usually cooked traditionally by cutting the leaf with a double-handled round-bladed knife uh, into sort of masticated small pieces about 16th to an eighth of an inch in size and it goes kind of slimy um, that then is um, put together with a meat stock usually chicken or rabbit but could be lamb as the uh, the liquid that a meat has been cooked in and then uh, garlic and um, onions and tomatoes and herbs of flavoring of choice are added um, and it becomes a sort of green slimy soup um, that then the meat is re-added to. And that's the traditional way to eat it. And uh, once you tried it a few times, you'd like the sort of uh, slimy f- uh, texture of it and, uh, and the flavor that comes with it. But it's so high in potassium um, that it's one of the um, essential main crops in some ways. Um, very easy to grow. The small pods, when they're young and immature, can be eaten like a very small miniature okra as well. And when it's fully mature, unlike op- okra, the seed pods split open like a star and these, there are hundreds of little seeds inside. It's hardly been domesticated, so it's extremely hardy and very easy to grow as long as you have that germination temperature. It'll just about germinate on concrete. Uh, wonderful crop, totally unknown to some people. Uh, but definitely worth uh, an inclusion in the permaculture garden, even the permaculture main crop. Cocorus, oleatorus, give it a try. Wonderful stuff, great to eat, um, definitely easy to sell to anybody from that region of the world. It's a sentimental main crop. Thanks. Ooh, the little tip at the end. Um, I have started to figure out that if you want to make money in small-scale agriculture, forget the stuff that everybody buys and everybody eats and look for niches, which is how I have always made my way in the world of sales and marketing. It's finding niches. Even when I was in big-time sales stuff uh, with computer hardware, well, everybody uses computer hardware. Well, I focused on carrier class applications. I focused on... Um, OEM stuff with carriers themselves and people that built for carriers and industrial. And that was how I made a success out of a, a brand that nobody really knew by finding its, its, its strengths and marketing it that way. So when I had an Asian gentleman who came to get some duck eggs from me recently and he heard the word goji, his eyeballs about popped out of his head. I didn't even dare tell him there was jujube here because I know how that community reacts to that. So jute mallow. Where does one, pray tell, get jute mallow in the United States of America if one is from the Middle East? This may be another niche crop. I don't know yet. Now, one thing I want to caution you on. Jeff said when the seed pods are little, they can be eaten like an okra. I'm going to confess, I've never cooked one, so I don't know how much that changes it. But my instinct is you better do it when they're really, really, really small. They don't get very big either. They get about two inches long and they're very thin. And it is an okra relative. I 
always think to myself, if something produces a lot of seed, seed is high in protein, if that seed tastes good, then you might want to look at that aspect of it. So, in the spirit of research, I took one of these pods and popped it open, you know, not too long before it would have probably popped open itself, and got some of the seeds out and said, wow, look at all those seeds. Let's taste that. Not good. And I do like the leaves, even though they do get kind of okra-ish. They're not quite as bad, but like that. Um, the seeds were bad, 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 bad. So I guess when they're tiny, maybe that's different. I'll give that a try this year and report back. I'll try some little ones, stir fry them up. I'll probably do like four or five just to see if it's worth doing before I make a whole mess of them. Anyway, this is a great plant. I cannot overemphasize how easy this plant is um, to grow and how easy it naturalizes if you're anywhere in the south where it's really hot. Um, in the north, if you want to grow it, you're probably going to have to start it a few months early in you know, a, a hot house or a, a, a hot frame or in a really bright sunny window or something like that. Uh, and that it does transplant well. I would plant it in kind of a deep pot, though it has a big, deep taproot, uh, tap which is why it's such a strong plant. Anyway, um, with that, uh, let's go ahead and take a question for me from one of you guys here since uh, we're kind of short on those so far today. Hey, Jack, it's Karim Tasundi, formerly of Chicagoland. Uh, just calling to say I will be walking to Freedom this Saturday, June 6th, and I am leaving for the great state of Texas. I uh, just wanted to say thank you for uh, inspiring me to leave, and have yourself a great day, man. Bye. Well, first of all, I've known this is coming for a while. I just was really happy to hear Karim call this in and let people know he's going to be down here. He already had contacted me and wanted to have a beer this coming week, and, of course, I won't be here. I'll be in West Virginia. Um, I do want to kind of point out the Walking to Freedom forum that I set up is still active. People post on it daily. It's not like really, really active like the TSP main forum, but it's active. People are helping each other find new homes. And walking to freedom is about walking to freedom, but it's also about finding the place that already is closest to what you're looking for. So some people have looked at Texas and said, there's a lot of things that I don't like about Texas. Well, don't come here. Especially if you're going to come here and try to change it to something else, and that's not what we want. Right. That's what people say a lot about this migration issue with people moving from state to state. People come to Texas from California, for instance, and say, I had to leave California. The economy sucks. The taxes are too high. And the first thing they do is start bitching about everything that's not like California. And, you know, Texans are beginning to feel like Yankees come from California. Um, honestly. Uh, <laughs> Seriously. Uh, but I know with Krim coming down, we have a new brother in the Lone Star State that's going to really uh, enjoy this place. It really is. Um, there'll be some things you miss about the, the Midwest and the Northeast if you come here from either of those regions because we have long, hot summers and uh, we don't have the incredible flush of greenness that you do get in, in those areas. And that's part of what I miss about that. But we do have some really great people here, and it might be a good place for you, and it might not. I set up Walking to Freedom not to get everybody to come to Texas or, you know, and I was kind of inspired by the Free State Project in New Hampshire. And of course, they want everybody to come to New Hampshire. What I actually want is people to use the republic the, the way that it was designed. I'm not exactly a fan of government at any level at all, period, the end, infinity, but it is what we have. So I try to work with what we have to the best of my ability. And there is no doubt that states like New York and Illinois and California and Rhode Island and Maryland have lost their effing minds. And they have just gone too far. And I think it's time to just let those states be what they are and let them become the catastrophic failures that are setting themselves up to become. 
let it go, let it burn, so to speak, metaphorically, not in reality. If it does burn in reality, it will be because of their own doing. And go to places that fit you better. And Texas may or may not be the place for you. But get over to Walking to Freedom if you haven't been there. And I want to encourage this too in folks. When you make the move, Walking to Freedom has a board for you to write a letter to your city, to your state, to your county, to everybody that's part of why you've said, F it, I'm out of here. Okay? Please write those letters. And please let me know you have. That is the biggest thing we can do. This is their last act of rebellion prior to active rebellion. Right? This is, we've, we've voted and that didn't work. We have, you know, set up our lives as best we can for ourselves and that didn't work. And now you've oppressed me beyond what the federal government does. Instead of being my advocate of liberty, which is the way a republic is supposed to be, you have decided to be more oppressive, not less oppressive than the federal government. Instead of saying to the federal government, thou shalt come no further, go backwards, you said, hey, that's a great idea. Let's continue. Let's, let's hand the ball off to us, and we'll smash liberty further. Okay, screw it. Choke on it. You're, I'm taking my tax base, I'm taking my income, I'm taking my time, I'm taking my talent, I'm taking my effort, and I'm leaving and I'm going elsewhere. And I know people have said, I think we should stay and fight. If you want to stay and fight, you stay and fight. But this is how the Republic was designed. This is why greater power was given onto the states than the state, capital S. I've had people say, the United States is not a state. Well, if you spell it with a lowercase s, you're correct, but it is a state with an uppercase s. It's exactly what it is. It is the state instead of a state. Got it? So the state, the super state that is the United States of America, has federal authority granted to it by our Constitution. And that is actually dramatically limited authority, which it exceeds on a daily basis. And it is time for individual states to start saying, I don't think so. I don't think so. You've gone far enough, and we're going to start pushing back. And only the small case state, the small S state, is big enough to push back against the big S state. If your state's not pushing back, then what direction is it going? Think about that. It's just like I say about liberty from time to time. There's no static. You're either working for your own liberty forward or it's sliding backward because you're not doing anything at all. You either are proactive or the system is anti-active. Okay? This is the truth then. If your state isn't making any efforts to push back the federal government, then I guarantee you it's making active efforts to further encroach on your liberties. I guarantee you. Is Texas perfect? No, it is not perfect. People send me emails and go, I can't believe this, you know, some cop being a dick or something, you know, happened in Texas. I'm like, I can. Texas is, a, the Texas state government is awful. It's just a whole lot less awful than a lot of other states' governments are. You know, I mean, one of the problems we honestly have in Texas is we have so much success. That means the state has a lot of money, and when governments have a lot of money, they can do a lot of stuff they shouldn't do. The counterbalance has always been, this is a big-ass state, and Texas don't, Texans don't like being told what to do. And one thing I can say about local politics here, when a state representative or a state senator goes out of the confines of, of reality, with the exception of the real urbanized folks that already are there from like urban Dallas and hippie centric parts of Austin and Houston uh, and, and, and what have you. The rest of the state, if a guy starts doing something stupid, he goes. They, get, they will bounce him fast 
And our, our legislature only meets once every two years. That means a, a, a congressman in this state, a state congressman, or a state, uh, sorry, state house rep, gets one chance to screw up, and they're out. I, I, I really kind of like that. Do I like everything? No. But that's why I set up Walking to Freedom. If you've never heard of this before, you go to walkingtofreedom.com, and it's a form you can register there, and you can learn about what's going on in all the states. You can, uh, next time we run, a, we should run the poll again soon, vote the naughty list again. And, uh, and this is the 10 states that suck the worst. Uh, and those are the ones that we specifically target to. It doesn't matter where you go, but leave those. And uh, it's a little different approach than they took with Free State, which I love and still support. But come on down to Texas. we got some good stuff going on here. Let's take another one. This one for an expert council member. This one for council member Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design. Um, ben, I know that you really worked hard for 10 years on your, your, your 10-acre homestead. So like a year to an acre, if you think about it that way. And it, it's beautiful. And you've done some amazing things. But also you've been working more on some larger scale stuff, uh, some broader acre stuff and things like that. I wonder if you could just update us on some of the other things you're doing that we maybe don't see on the whole systems design website other than maybe some pictures or what have you, stuff that's not in your book and, and what have you, the stuff you've been doing the last year or two and uh, where that's headed and what's going on with that. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with the Expert Council and Whole Systems Design. Yeah, most of what we've done, as you say, is um, on our 10-acre property as far as what my book is about. Um, but we've worked on, uh, you know, dozens of sites, especially in New England, and I've done a couple hundred site consults around the country and, and also internationally. Um, however, really our development and, and and work and where we've learned the most is definitely on this 10 acre site. We've also been for the last two years developing a larger 175 acre broad acre permaculture site, which we own as well um, south of here. And a little bit of an update on that. Um, we are in year two, so we're taking care of the 10,000 trees or so that we've planted there. We planted on a, um, Key line um, water management pattern, uh, bringing water from the valleys to the ridges um, between one and three percent grade, and most of our alleys are about uh, thirty to fifty feet wide. Some are a little wider. None are narrower because we want to be able to hay the field. It's a, an exhausted hay field that's been hayed for fifty acres. It's about twenty-five acres of open land, uh, and then we've planted. You know, a range of basically everything that would grow in this area that's masting or fruiting that's also low maintenance. And so we've basically, for the last 11 years, seen what would work in our, in our Mad River Valley site. And we've applied that to this new site, um, at a larger scale. And so we've planted about a thousand oaks, a little more than a thousand chestnuts, uh, mostly Chinese American hybrids heavy on the bur oaks and swamp white oaks because we've seen them do really well uh, on this site. The site is a little bit colder than our, our older site, so it's a, a little more of a of a cold climate test site, but it's only 30 miles away, so it's a very similar climate, although it's much more east-facing than our, our original site is west-facing. The soils are also better, but it's still very shallow depth of bedrock. Some of the soils are agricultural where we're planting. Actually, most of them are. Um, and it's definitely a lot drier. We've also planted um, heavy on the mulberries, apples, pears.
pears, quite a bit of sour cherries, but not as much as the others, and a lot of hazelnuts. And then there's, you know, a couple dozen other varieties. So essentially, it's, it's basically a layout like Mark Shepard has on his farm, although we didn't do parallel rows. I wanted to prioritize the water management, so the rows actually vary from parallel. Um, the long-term goal is as a silvo pasture, but we also planted closer in zone one and two, kind of pick your own, you know, really berry farm plantings where it's just rows of sea berry um, and some other berries that were planted at scale for ease of harvestability. I think in the long run, there'd be mechanical harvesting or just harvesting via, via grazing animals. And it really depends on how many people end up on site as well. Um, we're looking to get between three and five families on that property. Um, we don't, I don't, my, my interest is not really focused on commercial scale agriculture. I, I'm much more excited about what we can do on the homestead and kind of disaggregated small scales where we can do things more intensively, much more productively, and we can just know our systems more and get much more creative. Um, you know, that said, I think we need to hit it on all ends and I'm glad for what people are doing on commercial scale. It's just not really where I'm most excited about. So an ideal world, I think we'd have a handful of families on this site participating in the whole, uh, farm system on their own, not, you know, um, or cooperatively, but not in terms, not as set up as a commune or any type of cooperative owning adventure, probably, uh, more so, you know, um, actually subdivide parcels off and people participate with each other as they would naturally organize, um, to be in mutual benefit to, to one another. Um, so I think in that long-term view, this could be actually multiple farms that we've ended up planting. Uh, so right now we're, we're in year two, as I say, we're taking care of the plants. We're mulching them as much as we reasonably can. We're feeding them via foliar feed and, uh, some applications of an organic, um, soil-based fertilizer. Um, but mostly it's the foliar feed and we grazed last year, rotationing through the field. We probably won't do that this year just because we're, we're kind of busy and, and it's another project we really don't have time for right now, but that would be good. We certainly need someone who wants to, um, graze on that land. There's a huge grazing opportunity there. Um, and we're running our courses there and we have a, a full series of workshops and a yoga retreat as well scheduled. There's a, there's a, a large educational endeavor on that farm so that we're, we're programming that end of the facility, uh, much more each season. It's a beautiful place with tons of space and a lot of existing infrastructure. So there's a really a, a whole school and retreat center, um, in development there. And that's really been our focus with the agricultural ecosystem in the backdrop. And we have apprentices living there, and they do a lot of veggie gardening. And we have the beginning of a, quite an aquaculture system there as well. There's a few acres of water on that site, a massive pond and some smaller ponds as well. Uh, so far, as far as an update goes on the property, I think I hesitate to say much about it because it's just in year two. And, and what I've seen on our original site is that a lot of things that seem like they work in year one, two, or even three and four really don't prove themselves out over like year three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, we're in year 12 here now. And I know there's a lot of people with like brand new permaculture sites who are in their first or second or third year. And they're saying a lot about, you know, what's a great idea and what's not. And, I, you know, I, I kind of avoided doing that early on because I just I was learning so much and everything was changing from year to year. And so now I think with this being our new project and having an older project that's more than a decade in, 
I'm, I'm not jumping to any conclusions about what's great and what's not on the new site because I just know we're going to have new information and things that seem great now might not seem great once they test themselves out in a handful of years and things that maybe don't seem great now will be an opportunity later on. That being said, we're finding that uh, late frost has kind of zapped a bunch of leaves on um, some of the trees that are more sensitive, like chestnuts and black walnuts. Um, those compound leaf trees are always very sensitive. Um, we're finding that um, the apples are thriving, the hazelnuts thrive. This was our cold, one of the coldest winters in a century, so it was actually a really good test winter to have after the immediately the year after planting. So now if a tree's alive, it's kind of worth taking care of. You know, we take a different approach than Mark Shepard's stun approach. We're really caring for the plants a few years for a first few years to get them above deer browse. That's really our focus. Um, because we'll end up with a much higher diversity system. Like I said, our system's a lot like Mark's, but it's it, quite a bit more diverse. Um, I've been to Mark's and it, it's awesome, but we're shooting for like three, four or five times that diversity. We're not just mimicking the ecosystem that the diversity in the ecosystem that's where we are. We're actually trying to have a, a much higher diverse ecosystem. It's much more adaptive than our current ecosystem is. It's a very denuded ecosystem. We used to have all sorts of species we don't now. And we're also looking globally and have been for more than 10 years to uh, climatically analogous species that we've brought into the system here. And some of those are just fantastically adapted here to like, like the sea berries that we grow in large quantity. We have over a thousand of them planted on, on this farm, for instance. Uh, so we are giving them quite a bit of care in the first few years to get them above deer browse and established. And then we'll end up with an ecosystem from what I've seen on our original site. They'll be much more diverse than if we just, you know, stunted them from the beginning. Um, other lessons learned has been the deer browse has been really manageable. We've sprayed once every two to four weeks in the winter with an organic deer repellent. That works just great where we are. It might not work where you are. Um, we haven't, you know, wanted to fence the whole system. That would be basically unaffordable for us. Um, vole uh, damage has been somewhat significant, but much better than we thought it could be. That could be totally disastrous, but we lost maybe 5% of our apples or less maybe a few percent. They didn't really go for most of the other plants. Honeyberries, they tend to like, and they got they got a few, but we, we planted hundreds. Um, and I think otherwise, you know, it's really just the cold. The cold killed basically every pawpaw, um, and we had some big chestnut losses as well. Um, almost all the chestnuts we got from Mark Shepard died, did not survive the winter. Um, we saw mid-negative 20s, but it was just below zero for 90 days, and so the overall harshness of the winter was quite severe. But like I said, it was a good test winter. Um, so that's a bit of an update. I'll have much more on this in the coming years as we see it develop and have, have more conclusive things to share about it. But our permaculture courses are there, and they get to interact with the system quite heavily. Thanks a lot. Well, that's, of course, certainly great stuff from Ben Falk. I, I'm really excited about where the Seabury stuff goes because I know that he just barely touched on it there, but he's doing an awful lot of mass plantings, and I bet you there's a lot of genetic ver diversity going there, and I know it's one of his individual things that's really kind of hooked him on the potential of it. So we'll be looking to see what comes out of that as well. My next question is for uh, John Pugliano. He's an expert council member, of course, uh, on all things investing and finance. Uh, I found an interesting article that came across my desk this week on consumer spending 
and how it, it was, it's on Bloomberg Business, and the title is "Consumer Spending Stalled in April Is Americans Saved More?" As though this is a problem. Uh, so I have a question for John that is basically, you know, could you talk about uh, this article and how our current economy is dependent on spending? And if we don't have enough spending, the economy stalls and flattens, and we have this ah, disaster in teeth. But individually, our futures are dependent on saving and investing. And I can't blow all my money and save and invest unless I do one other thing, going to debt. And that's never a good option for the individual, though collectively we benefit from a booming, if you want to call it, economy. Before I... Um, Before I play John's answer, instead of reading the article, I have a video that went with it. I'm going to play that video for you, and then immediately after that, play John's answer to it. So here's the video, and John will come on and give you his analysis right afterward. Julie Hyman, once again, for the breaking news on income and spending. Julie? So it looks like consumer spending numbers are coming in unchanged, even as incomes rose uh, by four-tenths of one percent in the month of April. Again, that personal income number, a tenth of a percentage point better than estimated by economists, up four-tenths of one percent. Personal spending flat after uh, after being estimated to rise by two-tenths of one percent and after rising a half a percent uh, in March. And also, if we're looking at some of these inflation numbers here, the so-called PCE deflator uh, that we look at as a measure of inflation, the Fed looks at up only one-tenth of one percent year-over-year, uh, two-tenths of one percent is what analysts have been anticipating there. But really that personal spending number is the one that we're going to be focusing on. I'll go in and, and see if we can look at some of the components of that. We already knew retail sales uh, was flat in the month of April. So the question is, what's happening to that extra money that people are earning? Maybe it's going to savings. Could be. Joe? Yeah, that could be. So once again, we sort of get this disappointing number. The same story we've been getting for a while, which is, yeah, the incomes are all right. Labor market seems to be doing a little better. But any sort of hope for some huge spending boom that's going to propel the economy forward doesn't seem to be materializing. No, for what it's worth, no real market reaction, at yeah. least in equities. I'm looking at futures and they're, they've been bouncing around this morning. But since those data just came out, they're flatlining for the time being. Yeah, I don't think people have real high expectations of raging comeback economic growth at this point. Hello, TSP listeners. In reference to the uh, Bloomberg article about consumer spending stalling in April, and they're uh, actually worried that maybe it's because Americans are saving more. Well, the elites and the academics and the government, they are very concerned that Americans are saving too much. You see, because they believe in our Keynesian-based, debt-ridden consumer society, that the only way we can have continued growth is by more debt-ridden consumption. And now, personally, I don't believe that. Here are a couple points I want to make. First of all, even though we are seeing a lot of headlines that Americans are saving more, I'm not 100% sure that's really true. I can give you a lot of anecdotal stories that would suggest otherwise. You see, one of the flaws in the media's analysis that Americans are saving more is it's just that perhaps they're looking at the wrong data, or perhaps I should say that the data is just flawed. I'm not entirely sure that government and academic studies are truly capturing the major structural and lifestyle changes that Americans are going through. Now, a lot of this is being driven by technology as well as overall demographics and, uh, I think, change in consumer behavior. Here's the bottom line. They're telling us that spending is not up. But again, that may be it's flawed because of the way they're measuring it. For example, when they look at categories like rental cars and hotel stays, different types of business travel, they may not be seeing the growth in those areas that they would be expecting. And it's not because Americans aren't traveling more. 
It's just that they're staying in less hotels and using less taxi cabs and that travel is being masked and the consumer spending isn't necessarily being calculated in the official numbers because Americans are using services like Uber and HomeAway and Airbnb. And so the government and academic surveys may not be picking up that information. Another example would be looking at media consumption. Now, we know for a fact that less newspapers are being published and sold. But just because less Americans are buying and reading newspapers does not mean that Americans are not consuming media. We know that they're getting that through websites, through cable television, through uh, streaming media services like Netflix and Hulu, and of course through alternative media like the Survival Podcast. So that first point I wanted to make is I'm not entirely sure that Americans are really not spending as much. Government surveys and data may just not be picking it all up. The other point I want to make is is that the establishment and the media, they want you to consume. And I have a clip I want you to hear. Now, this was an interview conducted on Bloomberg News back oh, sometime in March earlier this year. This is an interview with Nobel laureate Robert Schiller, who incidentally is one of the few academics that I can say that I really respect and admire. I think he has very good analysis. But the problem is that he and the rest of the elite are so focused on debt and consumption that, in my opinion, they have the wrong idea about saving. So listen to Dr. Schiller's comments about how he believes that if Americans save too much, it'll collapse aggregate demand and the country will fall into a recession. Now remember, these comments were back in March. Here we are in June. And with wages and employment improving, but Americans not spending, this is what the media is concerned about. The solution can't be for the whole country to save more. Because we already are at zero interest rates uh, in real terms. There isn't you know, an opportunity, if everyone tries to save more, it will just reduce the aggregate demand and put us back in the recession. Well, there you have it. There's just one example that the elites and the establishment, they want you to spend, they want you to consume, they feel that that's the only way that we're going to generate growth. But you see, that's really detrimental to your own personal finance. Your own gut tells you that. You know that if you're constantly spending more, you can't build wealth. Wealth can only be achieved when you're spending and consuming significantly less than what you're earning. And for the middle-class American that someday wants to be financially independent, that means you have to be putting away at least 10 to 20%, if not more, of your earnings, depending upon how early you're starting to save and build that nest egg and how successful you are as an investor. Now, the reason you're seeing these articles and all this analysis by the media that maybe Americans are just saving too much, well, here's their concern. They see that more Americans are becoming employed, and at the same time, earnings are going up. And with the collapse in oil prices, on average, Americans are saving somewhere around a dollar a gallon from what they were paying 12 months ago. And yet, they're not seeing that additional consumer spending. So Americans are working more, they're earning more, they're spending less on energy, and yet they're consuming less. That has the establishment very worried. But don't let that entice you to go out and overspend. Remember when your parents used to say to you, hey, just because everybody else is jumping off the bridge, that doesn't mean that you have to jump off the bridge too? Well, that's the advice you need to consider when people are telling you to spend more and not save. That kind of logic is totally detrimental to you building up your own personal wealth. Let the other people be fooled. Let them jump off the financial bridge. I believe that ultimately our economy will be stronger when people do adjust their lifestyles and they live in a more frugal and responsible manner. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be going through growth pains. This country and this society has been on binge spending for decades. And just like after a long night of partying, you wake up with a headache and a hangover, 
and you have to work through those things, well, our economy is going to have to work through them as well. I believe the best thing that you can do for your household is to learn how to increase your earnings and at the same time reduce your consumption. That's the best way to put yourself on a path towards financial independence. That clip that I played from Dr. Thomas Schiller, you can hear a full analysis that I made on his statements back on March 19th in episode 96 of the Wellsteading Podcast. And speaking of the Wellsteading Podcast, that's where you can go to hear all my up-to-date market analysis and my thoughts on general wealth building principles. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. As always, a crack analysis by John Pugliano. The one thing I want to add and kind of point out is you notice how they're talking about fractions of a point and, and really deliberating over fractions of a point. You know, incomes were up four-tenths of a percent, and we were expecting two-tenths of that to go into additional spending, but only one-tenth did. You know your economy is being run by fools when you start analyzing things at a tenth of a percent. Uh, in regards to how much money people are spending versus saving. When the average American should be saving at minimum a 10% of their incomes, and most are saving less than 3% if you average it out, generally what we have are people sending, saving 15 to 20% of their incomes and other people saving none. And that's how we end up with 3 and 4% numbers. And we're worried about why are, why are they saving this extra tenth of a percent of new income versus spending it on crap? Man, we, we are in a situation where this designed economy is designed to cause misery. And as soon as you start to not participate in the misery, you are part of the problem. This is why George Bush Jr. told you after 9-11 the best way you could be patriotic was to go back out and start spending your money. Um, otherwise, I'll just leave it to John for that. I do have episode 96 of the Wealth Steading Podcast linked to in the show notes today if you want to hear his additional analysis on some of this stuff. Uh, with that, I want to bring on Paul Wheaton now to give us an update on the Dukedom of Wheatonville up in the wilds of Montana. Paul, what's going on in Wheatonville this uh, week? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with an update, as requested, from Wheaton Laboratories. Uh, I guess the big thing is is the the whole Jean Payne hot water thing that we're doing, and and this is where we got a huge compost pile with a coil of pipe through it to heat a bank of showers, uh, and the the pile had cooled off over the winter time, so it, it went dead. Uh, we did a bunch of stuff to try and see if we can get it heated back up, like you know just adding some nitrogen to the to the surface and watering it in, and and after a while we thought you know let's just do it right, so we opened the pile all the way up and rebuilt it. Um, in the past, when we've built these piles for hot water, um, it took about 48 hours to get scalding hot water. Uh, it's been a little over 48 hours now, and the water is definitely warm, but it's not scalding hot. So I think this is one uh, that's going to be a, a bit slower. Uh, you know, biology works in crazy ways, sometimes faster than others. And so what we need is a lot of people to pee on it. And so we've got these ramps that go over the pile. We've built an enormous structure around the pile to give people an opportunity to uh, contribute. And so uh, we've got everybody making a few passes a day trying to get that pile heated up. Uh, hopefully here in a few more days we'll have scalding hot water. Uh, we also planted melons in the pile because, of course, melons just love compost piles. And so hopefully here in a few months we'll have some lovely melons. Um the, uh, there's a mention somewhere in some of your stuff about the highest calorie per acre. And my understanding is, is that the highest calorie per acre is sunchokes. And we planted a few of them last year. 
And now we've got sunchokes galore because sunchokes, of course, are a perennial and uh, they're, they're kind of like a potato. Um, I've got at least one big video on YouTube about sunchokes. Um, but I'm a, I'm a big advocate. Very simple to grow. You just, in fact, I, I put them at the top of some, uh, berms. They weren't even hugel culture berms, just plain old berms, piles of dirt. And I thought for sure they just got cooked and that they were just destroyed. But they're back again this year. So, uh, they tolerate really horrible conditions. Um, in our, uh, pooper number two, which is the one at base camp, um, we put a little sink in there and it's kind of a funky little thing. We've got a foot pump, uh, and a five gallon bucket of water. So that way, um, people can be able to wash up. And of course, what comes out of the sink is routed outside. And, uh, we have a PDC that starts in a few weeks and the instructor was asking for projects. I think a good one is to route the water from this new sink and then the old sink, which is attached to the shower shack. And then also tap in to the pipe that comes out from the urine diverter in the pooper and then route those all over to a very small swale where uh, we'll plant some willow trees and cottonwoods, which we call poop beast plants. And they'll, they, they really do a thorough job of consuming excess nitrogen. Uh, and we might even plant some nettles. We'll see how that goes. But uh, the idea is that we can make a pretty instant jungle, especially when we've got some kind of event going on with a lot of people here making contributions. Uh, Ernie and Erica Wisner, the rocket mass heater experts, will be here in a couple of days. Some of Ernie's experiments this year have led to a rocket mass heater that might be touching 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. At that temperature, plastics break down rather completely. So I think we might be doing a little bit of testing with the idea of burning garbage. Um, probably not all garbage, but some garbage. I mean, after all, you think about it like plastics are effectively uh, petroleum. And so, you know, if we burn it completely so that there is um, nearly zero pollution because we've got to such a high temperature, this this could be you could effectively heat your home with garbage. So um, uh, we've also got some uh, uh, an experimental super small rocket mass heater core that we started to put together, and Ernie will be finishing it up when he's here. And we've got a tiny house called the Love Shack that we'll install it in uh, and see how it does this upcoming fall. Speaking of which, we've got our Rocket Mass Heater Innovators event this October, um, and it'll be uh, Ernie and Erica, uh, uh, Peter Vandenberg, uh, Matt Walker, Tim Barker are our five innovators from last year, and we'll be adding two more innovators to have an event this year. Um, while Arnie and Erica here will nail down the final details and start selling tickets in the next week or two. Uh, we're starting to gather logs for a project we call the Berm Shed. We hope that this will be a 1,000-square-foot shed with less than $200 in materials costs. Uh, plus, it'll be invisible from two sides and invisible from space, so seriously Earth-integrated. Uh, once the materials are gathered, we are hoping that it will be built in four days. I hope to report progress on that the next time. All right, Jack, that's the news. Thanks for giving me a chance to spew my gick on your on your stuff here. Uh, talk to you next time. Uh, next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris from a listener on whether or not the tax the the contributions. Uh, to Citizens Assisting Citizens, which is a disaster response organization uh, that I set up, are tax-deductible, and whether or not if you equip your vehicle as a volunteer, if that's tax-deductible, and further, 
Is there anything specifically that CAC, Citizens Assisting Citizens, is looking for right now uh, as regards to participation? Anyway, with that, Steve, can you please give us an update on that? Of course, Mr. Harris, while answering all your questions on stuff scientific and energy-wise and engineering, is also a board member of Citizens Assisting Citizens. has been a big part of getting that organization that I conceived of off the ground. Steve, what's up? Hi, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. For the CAC team tax do, uh, deductions off your income tax, for your donation that you might give us, anything from a dollar to a thousand dollars, you just, it's through PayPal. You don't need to have a PayPal account to donate. PayPal just processes your credit card or your PayPal transaction. PayPal will give you a receipt, you print it out, give it to your accountant. Same thing goes for your membership dues of $50 a year. You print it out, give it to your accountant. Now, the items for your truck, are they donated? Well, it's like donating to the Boy Scouts of America. You have to keep track of what you bought, how often you use it, keep the receipts for your accountant, and how and if the items for the truck are deducted is between you and your accountant. Have them explain the rules to you. Two, Next subject, we need ham radio operators for the CAC team. We need hams to join CAC to ride shotgun in our scout anchor vehicles. You don't need to build your own vehicle. We just need you and your radios to ride shotgun with us. So make them portable, able to hook up to a cigarette lighter, and some magmount antennas. I explained to the board of directors that a ham radio operator is like a Jedi Knight sitting next to you, a skilled ham radio operator. He can connect to the local weather nets, find out what's going on. He can talk up to over 100 miles just on two meters, two meters or 440. And uh, right from the truck to different repeaters, he can get in touch with the ham radio emergency people of Aries and Races, and he can get in touch with local emergency services for where you are going and get the right spot for you to deploy in and even get word to the police at the checkpoints that you are bringing food and water in to let you through the roadblock. If you are a ham and want to ride shotgun with us and have some fun experiences, go to CACteam.com. That's Charlie Alpha Charlie T E A M dot com and sign up and in the comments section let us know you're a ham. One piece of uh, side note here of housekeeping. Uh, I get lots of emails a day from you guys and I will tell you that I read 100% of them and I respond personally to 99% of them. One guy said I was short and terse and rude with him, and I, I answered his question in, in three sentences. Uh, in one sentence, I told him the truth. In the next sentence, I said 99 out of 100 people won't agree with me on the Internet, and I gave him an example why the truth was correct. If I, I mean, I write quickly, okay, and sometimes your answers can be answered in just a few sentences. If I ever fail to explain to you in detail enough for you to answer your question, please don't think I'm being rude. Just email me back and say, Steve, would you please explain this further and tell me what this is. I will write you an entire paragraph. I will give you Wikipedia references. I will give you everything you need to fully understand what you are asking me to explain to you. And I'm happy to do this. 
So, with that said, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. All of my true, all of my stuff I did with Jack, all of my true stories, all the testimonials are at steven1234.com. Thanks guys. Bye. Well, I'm going to take a question for myself next and I'm going to do my best to answer it even though it's one that's going to be a little difficult to ferret out. Um, before I do though, I want to say something on behalf of Steve and myself and other people that are connected with the show as council members and, uh, guests and things like that. When it comes to answering emails, um, sometimes as much as I want to help people when they get bitchy because they didn't get the answer they wanted or the level of detail that they wanted, this is how I honestly feel. You're lucky you got an effing answer at all. Um, I really do. I think that, we all do the best we can to help you guys. And sometimes the answer is don't do that. That's a bad idea. And I don't have time to explain in laborious detail all the reasons it's a bad idea. Uh, many times I'll throw a link in there. Here's a podcast we did about this. And they want to know, well, what, what minute and second do I start to hear this explanation? And you almost start to feel like, really? What, what the hell do you think we sit around and do all day, specifically sit around and wait for your individual personal teacup email to answer with every single bit of care and concern and, and, and for your, not just your, your knowledge, but for your feelings that we can. There are people that come off that way. And, you know, Steve can be, at times even a little bit more abrasive than I've ever thought about being, and he's even kind of copped to that, admitted it, and apologized for it on the show. But in the end, Steve Harris gives a shit, uh, and Jack Spirico gives a shit. That's why we do what we do. Um, but sometimes the answer, like I might give you an answer, or Steve might give you an answer, like, just don't do that. Maybe I have three seconds to answer you. And maybe you're about to do something dangerous, or maybe you're about to do something that's going to cost you a lot of money or cost you a lot of time, and I don't have time to explain it, but I give a shit enough to tell you don't do that. Um, that's not being terse. That's giving a shit. And frankly, this is how I feel about anybody who can't understand that. Tough shit. And <laughs> I, I know that might sound like I'm being a jerk, but there's an old saying, an old Native American saying about walking in a man's moccasins for a, a mile. Um, and it's interesting when people who have never walked in your moccasins for a second want to tell you what to do. And I don't want to sound like a jerk with this. But I do want people to temper their expectations with a little bit of reality. I literally read 400 emails a day on average in my attempt to do my best for this audience, and I know Steve doesn't get that far, but I know it's big. It's huge. I can only do that because I can read as a picture. That's the only way I can even, like most people probably couldn't even do that. And that doesn't mean everybody gets an answer, but it every, means everybody gets heard. And just because I agree with, don't agree with you doesn't mean you were heard. That's the other thing that gets me pissed. Uh, and probably council members pissed when somebody says, well, I think you should change your opinion to this. And then you say, well, I've considered your opinion in the past, and I'm, I'm not really uh, of that opinion, and I'm not going to be, and I, I disagree with you for the following reasons. And then they're like, well, you're not open-minded. No. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave it go there. But it is a bit of a pet peeve of mine. When I get balled out in an email because I gave somebody a three-sentence answer, uh, like Steve just talked about, you know, again, there's probably 15 people that day that I didn't think it was some kind of pressing issue that was going to cost them a lot of money or time or safety, 
and I just took their opinion or their thoughts and considered and said, put that in the file, Jack, for using it in the future on the show uh, that didn't get an answer, and you did, and now you're pissed because I didn't write you 14 paragraphs in perfect pronunciated English with 17 references as to why I have the opinion I do. If you ask a man for his thoughts and opinion on something, and it's and it's an easy thing to give you an answer to, he may give you just what you need to hear based on what you've asked. And uh, I, I am actually going to tell you that you could ask me for more information, um, it, just as Steve said you could, but you may, you may not always get it. I will never promise you something I can't deliver. I will make, never make a commitment to you, at least knowingly, that I can't you know, get done. And, and that means at times that the answer is no or you don't get a response. Uh, I never do that with customer service. If you ever have a customer service request, you know. Anyway, it's just one of the trials of running a modern business. Like, people write to us, and you don't realize that, like, we're doing the same job that the, the DJs you hear on, on radio do. In fact, we're doing a bigger job because we don't have a production assistant. We don't have a recording assistant. We don't have a research assistant. We don't have a program manager. And yet we're trying to answer the vast majority of communications that come our way, where if you email somebody doing that job, you never hear back, with very few exceptions. guy I'm going to mention here in just a second is one of the exceptions, Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor. I'll be using him in an answer to this next call. Here we go, folks. Hi, Jack. This is Melissa in Illinois. I'm having a problem with my autumn olives. They were all doing really well last year. They were growing fast. They were filling out our hedge. But this year, the leaves are really sparse, and one of the plants is all but dead. The leaves on all of them have started to turn brown, and it looks like they're wilting. Um, they're not crust, like crispy. They're kind of soft. I'm not sure what to do about it. I can't find a whole lot online because everything I find talks about how to get rid of it since it's supposed to be this invasive species. Um, so right now I'm just monitoring for pests. Uh, I found a couple that are sketchy that I'm trying to figure out, out what kind of worm they are. And then I'm using Organic Miracle Grow. But until I know what the problem is, I'm really reluctant to use the same treatment on all four because I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. Uh, and it's not a water issue because we've had good rainfall. We haven't had too much. We haven't had too little. So any help would be much appreciated. I would really love to be able to save these guys. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Bye. I don't know because this is a plant that if you try to kill it, you usually can't succeed. Um, here's a few ideas I can give you to take a look at. One is water, even though you said that it's not too much and not too little. I highly doubt that it's too little because you'll, you're probably not going to see this soft, wilty, unhappy, yellowy thing. You're going to see dry, brown, crisp if you have such... Um, dryness that this this plant is um, is going to get sick like that on you. So that would be the first thing to check is, is it just too wet? Um, and that's hard to fix. And the reason I say that is I have a lot of autumn olive in its second year here, and it all really did well last year. A couple of them got eaten by geese and things like that, but even those, when they came back, they boomed. Uh, even with first-year plantings, and even some being planted late in the year. And then this spring, they took off and started to bud out really fast and look beautiful. Several locations that got really wet during all this rain, they never got as bad as what you're talking about, but they had that look, the yellow, unhappy look to them. 
And nitrogen should not be an issue, though some other nutrients could be, but usually yellow is nitrogen deficiency. This is a nitrogen fixer. It makes its own nitrogen. But if you get into an anaerobic state, especially due to being too wet soil, then the microbes that are able to help that plant make its nitrogen are not able to do their job. They are, they are aerobic organisms, not anaerobic organisms. So moisture could be an issue. And I don't really know how to fix that other than you have to check the area. And if, if you check that area and it's really, really wet, and you check an area 20 feet away and it's you know lo a lot less wet but moist, that's the most likely culprit. Because what I've noticed is since we had this break in the rain and we've had a week and a half of dry, hot weather, all the olives that were looking sick stopped. I have to tell you I have this problem, too, with a different plant species, and I'm not sure what it is yet, where the plant just basically turns yellow, starts to, to, to just get sick and sad and sad and sad, and then just kind of dies. With mulberries, several different of my mulberries, which is another tree that's so hardy, and I don't understand... A third-year Illinois ever-bearing mulberry in a system that everything else seems happy in just did this, and it's got now root suckers coming up, but the grafted part is dead. Now, I don't know if something went wrong with the graft, but it's sure you wouldn't think of it being the third year that this would happen. And the leaves turned brown, and the mulberries dried up, and it just never looked happy this year. It's on the end of a bed. I wonder if the dogs peed on it and killed it. I've got another place I planted a mulberry. Uh, a Black Beauty, I think it was, or a Pakistan or something like that, and it looked like it completely died. So I yanked it out of the ground. I'd bought a new mulberry. It was really wet. I thought that's what killed it, and it had dried up some, so I put the new mulberry in, and I, I have irrigation there so it gets water when it needs it, and I put a pink fruiting mulberry in there. It looks dead. It looks dead. Just absolutely dead. Nothing looks like it was damaged. The birds didn't tear it up or anything. The dogs didn't tear it up. Maybe they peed on it. I don't know, but it's dead. The one that I pulled out When I pulled it out, it had a little bit of a green bud on it in one spot. I put it in a pot. It's doing good in the pot now. It's like that spot's killing it. So something can go wrong with the spot. Now, is that ground just highly anaerobic from how much? Because that place was flooded. Possibly, I don't know, but there's one 10 feet away, and it's doing rather well. So sometimes... You just have to figure out what's going on, and sometimes it's a location, and you're not even sure what it is. So I just want to admit my own limitations here, but I'm going to give you some ideas. One, I just mentioned Howard Garrett in the lead-up to the show, and just as a fair thing, there's another local radio guy named Ed Wallace. Ed Wallace is a, uh, does news, and he does um, car show, a car show, and it is called Wheels. And it's kind, of, it bridge, it's kind of cool. He has historical stuff that we call the backside of the news, and mostly automotive stuff uh, for like four hours every Saturday or Sunday. I think it's Saturdays. He answers every email he gets. Howard Garrett does the same. He also is an AM radio guy on Sundays. Now, these guys do one show a week, but I am impressed with them. So I want to point out there are some people on regular radio, you know, terrestrial radio, that do answer all their emails. So Howard Garrett has a formula called Garrett Juice. And Garrett Juice is a wonderful product. And you can buy it. I have a link to it on Amazon for you so you can buy it and try it. If you want to make it yourself and you have all the materials or can get the materials, he has the ingredients for it on his website, uh, dirtdoctor.com. You can go there and get the ingredients for that and make it yourself if you don't want to buy it. And the, he makes it in a concentrate, though. One gallon is like 20 bucks, but it makes like 32 gallons. So it's pretty economical. And if you don't want to make it yourself, it's the way to go. And the Garrett Deuce Plus 
has some fish emulsion in it. Everything's organic that Howard does, um, and that gives it a little nitrogen kick. Not that you need it there, but it's a good function stack. You're probably going to use this stuff elsewhere. You can try the garret juice both in the ground and spray the, the leaves and the foliage of the tree with it and see if that helps it come back around for you. Um, Howard would also tell you, I just don't know that this would ever be the case with autumn olive, but if you have planted your plants too deep where the root crown can't breathe, it causes what he calls sick tree syndrome. Okay, So this is where you want the, 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 the top of the root crown to be at soil level or a little bit above. So sometimes simply pulling the soil back a bit and exposing the tops of the roots is not much more than that does it take to rebound a sick tree. Get a long handle, a long screwdriver, something like about a foot long with a point on it or anything like that tool, and aerate the soil around them. Poke it in the ground all around and put up 50 holes around both plants. Let some air in there and do that. On that note, um, if you kind of realize that you have all your mulch right up to the trunk, this could be the problem as well. If you push especially wood mulches, you do not want your wood mulch in contact with the trunk of your tree at ground level. It can rot. As the, as the wood mulch starts to rot, it spreads into the bark and it rots the cambium. And that, if you pull it back and you see that there's rot on the trunk, there's your problem and it may or may not come back around once you do it. You may lose them. It, it would be the same as if you took a pocket knife and cut the cambium all the way around the tree and girdled out a piece of the cambium, cut it an inch apart from each other and peeled it off. So there was no, because the, 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 the bark protects it and the core holds it up and every bit of nutrient that goes up into that tree goes in a little thin green layer around the edges. If that's rotted, and I've seen autumn olives come back with just a little bit left on them, man, they'll come back. But if it rotted all the way around, you may not be able to save them. So those are a couple things you can do. One more thing, and this is your Hail Mary Pass. There is a product called Super Thrive. Super Thrive sounds like snake oil. It came out in like one of the world's fairs or something like that. And some people think it's the a holy grail and some people think it's, it's, it doesn't do anything at all. I have not noticed in using it in control. So you, you water this tree with a little bit of super, a couple drops of super thrive and this tree without it. And the trees really look that much different. What I have seen it do is restore sick trees and sick plants and take stressed plants and trees and restore them especially plants that have been shipped to you. So you can try, follow the instructions on the label to the letter, do not overuse this stuff, the tree-level tree treatment amounts, and water the ground around the tree with Super Thrive, in addition to everything else I said, and that may very well save your trees. For everybody else with Super Thrive, I will also tell you this. Every time I get a shipment of plants in, if they're bare roots, I put a cap full in like a 15-gallon tub, and I put my bare roots right in that tub and I let them soak for a day before I plant them. Or before I pot them, if I'm going to pot them and wait to plant them at a different time of year. It has done wonders to improve the survivability of my plants that have been shipped. When they're in little pots and stuff, when you get them and they, you get a plant that's been in a pot from uh, you know a shipper, no matter how hard they try, that plant does not like being closed up in a box, bounced around in a truck, hot, cold, hot, cold, no water, etc., you take the Super Thrive again. Uh, you know, uh, I, I use a, I make like a five gallon bucket, and I'll use it like a half a capful to a five gallon bucket. I'll make that up, and I use a little cup, and I water all the potted plants for two days 
would super thrive. And then I go back to regular water. I have seen it take trees and plants and things that have come in that just look like they're going to die. And it doesn't always work, but usually it turns them right around. And comparing it to just, well, if you give it water, it's going to come around. I don't know, man. Uh, Nick Ferguson's the one that told me about this stuff. He said, don't expect it to do everything, but for sick and stressed plants, it can save plants that would otherwise die. And my feeling up to now is that's been the case. It is not an organic product. It has vitamins and freaking hormones in it. But it's something you use once. You don't use this as part of your regime anyway. I've seen no benefit to that. But just to get your plants, because we use rooting hormone for cuttings, right? So, um, and that's the other thing I use it for. When I stick cuttings, um, and I do like softwood cuttings, or I'm just sticking them in a pot like mints and stuff like that. Gojis I do this way. I do my cuttings. I dip them in the rooting hormone for five seconds. I stick them in their, their moist container. And then what I do is I water that container with the Super Thrive formula one time. And I'm telling you, it works. It sounds like snake oil, but it's been around for over like 60 or 70 years for a reason. It works. I'll have a link to that and the Garrett Juice in today's show notes for you. Uh, let's take one now for expert council member Keith Snow. Uh, this question comes in from a listener, and it is, what is the best way to season cast iron cookware? What kind of utensils should you use? What are the advantages versus conventional cookware? Please include any other pertinent information. Thank you very much uh, to everyone that makes TSPC what it is. This is Sean B. from Maine. Six minutes, uh, six minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a note for myself. Anyway. Anyway, um, I'm also going to, I'm going to play this, but I'll just tell you now so I can go right to the next, uh, call after this. Paul Wheaton has an article that's a little different take. I'm going to link to Paul's article in addition to the information Keith is going to provide you with here. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Sean from Maine, I wanted to answer your question about cast iron cookware. First of all, I absolutely love cast iron. It is tremendous stuff to cook with. Now, your question about what's the best way to season it, it's pretty easy to season. Now, I'm going to assume that you've got a used piece. If that's the case, take a little copper scrubber and scrub under, use soap and water, scrub in the sink and get anything that's loose on the inside, outside handle, scrub it all off and then rinse it really well and then dry it with a paper towel. Then what you want to do is oil it. Now you can use a cheap oil. Don't use something like olive oil, but a, a cheap uh, vegetable oil or maybe a tablespoon or two of Crisco shortening. And then take a paper towel. If you're using the shortening, press it in and rub it everywhere, inside, the sides, the outside, the bottom, the handle, everywhere. Same thing with the oil. If you need to add a little more than that, um, you don't want it dripping all over the place, but you definitely want to see the oil on there. So oil the entire pan. Now, your oven is cold. Open the oven, pull out the bottom rack, place a sheet pan or better yet, a piece of heavy-duty tin foil, a large piece, that's to catch any drippings. Then pull out the middle rack, take your cast iron cookware that you just oiled, place it in there, but invert it so it's upside down. Now, close the door, turn the oven about 375 degrees, 350, 375, somewhere in there. Set the timer for an hour. After it bakes in there for one hour, turn off the oven but leave the pan in there to cool completely down to room temperature in the oven. When you take it out, you now have a piece of seasoned cast iron. Now, you certainly can do that process over. You don't need to scrub it again, but you can re-oil it, 
place it back in there, turn the oven on, do it again. And the more you do this, the better the pan becomes. Now, I sometimes will do mine two and three times, and then they can be good as long as you care for them for a year or so or two years. Now, here's the deal with caring for them. When you cook with it, you don't want to turn this thing. I mean, remember, cast iron's got great heat retention properties. You don't want to blast it on, you know, 9,000 degrees, but medium-high heat is about fine. And then if you happen to be cooking something that's extra sticky, warm the pan up, put in some butter, and then things like eggs will tend to release a lot more easily once you heat it up and add a little bit of butter so the surface is slick. Um, but the key is when you get done cooking, if you can take the pan right away while it's still warm to the sink and take a scrub brush like a stain with stainless steel bristles or um, they make vegetable brushes, something like that, warm water and scrub off anything that's in there. You, you want to avoid using soap because that will whittle away at the um, non-stick layer you've worked so hard to build. And don't worry about, you know, some people, ah, I'm not using soap. There could be a bacteria in there. Yeah, there could be. But when you heat that pan up um, to, you know, two, three, four hundred degrees, nothing will live. So don't worry about it. The key to caring for these things is after you wash it, when you're done cooking with it, don't just wash it and, you know, put it into your drying rack because it will rust quicker than you know what. So you need to, you know, rinse it off, scrub it, whatever, and then you want to dry it carefully with a paper towel or if you're going to stay right there, you can put it back on the stove, warm it up until everything is evaporated, let it cool back down, put in a drop of oil and rub that oil in. But what I normally do is just dry it off very well with paper towels. And again, always another drop of oil and just smooth that in there. And that really helps to secure that coating. And over time, the more and more you cook with it, the more awesome it will become. Now, my mom has got an oval um, cast iron. You know, I guess you could call it like a skillet, but it's oval shaped. She cooks eggs and omelets on there. And that thing is as nonstick as anything because she's been cooking with it for years. So that's the advantages. Now, also, you can buy these things. They're not that expensive new, but you can buy them super cheap at a garage sale when they look really rough. And then take them to your shop. Take your electric drill, not the cordless. Take your electric drill with the horsepower. Put in an attachment like a wire brush. And then um, what I like to do is put sand, clean sand or uh, kosher salt, something like that, pickling salt, and get in there and hammer that thing with that drill with some serious RPMs and that scrub brush. Scrub that thing all the way smooth because when they rust, they tend to get pitted and the surface gets very uneven. It's, you can't re-season it like that. So you need to really grind that thing down. Remember, it's cast iron. You're not going to hurt it. So really put the spurs to it, grind it, you know, scrub it, whatever, until it's nice and smooth. Then, and do it all over it, handle, back, bottom. Then you can wash it, clean it, and season it like I just explained. Now, what are the advantages of using cast iron? Awesome heat retention and even cooking. I cannot tell you how frustrating it is to cook on flimsy, cheap cookware because it will burn even the best chef in the world, trust me, you start cooking with a flimsy pan, you're going to have hot spots, you're going to burn food, things are going to stick. They stink. And that's what's great about cast iron is the whole pan will get nice and hot and it's even. That means if you've got two fish fillets in there or two pieces of steak 
and they're not perfectly over the center of the pan, they're still going to cook evenly. There's nothing worse than uneven cooking from flimsy pans. Now, as far as um, tools, you can use anything. Um, steel um, utensils, wooden spoons, high temperature silicone. The only thing you really don't want to use is, and all of you have them, go into your cookware drawer, get out all those cheap flimsy plastic things, replace them with high temperature silicone with that sean i hope this helps uh guys do check out harvestseeding.com still have the spices on sale free shipping love you all jack thanks so much take care and have a great weekend next question is for council member erica strauss the question is what do you recommend for a suburban gardener to grow to provide a significant amount of calories for their family so space is limited and you can only do so much veg and all uh, what can you do for a calorically dense crop in small scale agriculture erica Hi, Jack. It's Erica calling in to answer your question about what a suburban gardener can grow to provide a significant amount of their own calories from their own land. Well, the first thing I want to say is forget grains. And this has nothing to do with paleo or primal or anything like that. It's just that in a small space, you really can't grow enough grains to make them a worthwhile part of your diet. I have some proof, and it's math. An acre of irrigated wheat will provide you with about 6.4 million calories, which sounds okay, right? Well, an acre of rice is a little bit better. That'll get you 6.7 million calories. But an acre of potatoes provides 17.8 million calories. So that's almost three times as much. So for the bulk of your annual vegetable calories, you really want to look at those dense, starchy tubers. And what I'd recommend is that you just pick the tuber that will perform best in your climate. In most of the U.S., this will be either potatoes or sweet potatoes. Pick the one that grows best where you are, pick the one you like the most, and that's your solid, starchy, caloric base that you can build from. Now, I like potatoes, but I think most people, especially people who live in the suburbs, are not so committed to food sovereignty that they would want to eat only potatoes for the rest of their life. So let's step back and look not just at the most efficient way to monocrop calories, but also look at some effective ways to get some diversity in your food calories. A balanced nutritional profile has got to include some fat and some protein. And this is where I think maybe the best possible crop is dense, long-keeping winter squash with large seeds. And the reason for this is that the winter squashes actually give you two crops. You have the flesh of the squash, which is high in carbohydrates and very rich in vitamins. And then you have the actual seeds of the squash, which are rich in fat and protein. So I think a lot of people have had pumpkin seeds as a snack. They're crunchy. They're yummy. You toast them up, put a little salt on them. They taste great. And they also provide that satiating quality that can be a little hard to come by when you're just talking about a vegetable pack. I'd also recommend large seeded sunflowers for the same reason, lots of fat and protein, good for people and also good for poultry. Now, a lot of times when we think about survival crops, we're thinking about dry beans, pinto beans, black beans, that kind of stuff. And in general, these are not the best crops to focus on if you have a really small space and you're space constrained, simply because a lot like grains, the yield 
and the calories yielded just don't justify the space and the time taken. But there are a couple of exceptions. The first is peanuts. If calories are your goal and if you can grow them in your climate and if you can eat them with allergies and whatnot, then peanuts are a fantastic legume to have in your garden. You'll get a ton of calories for the harvest and you'll get to make your own peanut butter, which I think we all know is delicious. And then the other exception to the don't focus on legume rule that I would give is if you can squeeze a secondary crop of fava beans or dry peas out of your garden because you live in an area where the climate is long enough that you can do a main crop of sort of a heat-loving thing like sweet potatoes and then turn around and get a secondary crop in the same square footage of, say, fava beans. Fava beans can be grown as a dry bean as well as a fresh eating bean. Uh, They keep pretty much forever once they're dry. You can make falafel. They're very high-protein, starchy. Some people have a little sensitivity to them, so you do have to be aware of that, but most people are able to eat fava beans just like they would any dry bean. I also want to encourage you to make sure you're using all of your space, however limited it might be, across all four dimensions. And what I mean by that is we know about 3D, the three dimensions, length, width, and height. But the fourth dimension is time. So you want to make sure in your small garden, make sure your season extension is on point. Make sure you're growing as early into the spring as you possibly can and as late into the fall as you possibly can. There are simple, low to no energy technique ways that you can almost double your growing season if you live in a cool climate. And that is going to be in the long run, even more valuable than a giant patch of potatoes. Just making sure that you have consistent nutrient dense crops coming out of your garden that you can use to maybe supplement some inexpensive purchase staples like beans and rice and that kind of stuff that don't make sense to grow on your own land. I do want to say that I think most small space urban gardeners with offsite income, people who are not actually trying to live entirely self-sufficiently on their small plot, are often better off growing their vitamins and buying their bulk calories. So what do I mean by that? Well, most of the vegetables that are not calorically dense, the salad and the cooking greens, the lettuce, the kale, the chard, all of the herbs, the oregano, the basil, snap peas, green beans, tomatoes, peppers, all the kinds of things that people tend to think of as the summer garden. Those usually give you the biggest financial return from your garden when compared to buying equivalent crops at the market. So you want to make those trade-offs between how much space something is taking up, how much money it costs you to buy from a farmer whose values you respect, and how much time it's going to take from you to harvest and process and all that kind of stuff. So this is one of those questions where it's really about what your personal priorities are for your time, your money, your land, and your dinner table. That's all I got. Again, this is Erica from the Expert Council. Thanks so much, you guys. I'll talk to you next week. Hey, Jack. This is Richard from Houston, the Houston area. Uh, I'm going to sneak in two questions real quick. One, I listened to episode 1071, Quail, and uh, you seem so excited about doing the Quail, but I don't remember following up and you actually doing that. I don't hear anything about it all here as ducks lately. Also, uh, second question, uh, why is it that I look through YouTube and other sites and I see so much excitement and energy for permaculture and growing food forests and so forth, but every video that I ever see is people running around on bare ground planting their first trees 
and you almost never see beyond uh, Lawnsworth follow-up videos where things are established and so forth. It seems to me that people are afraid to show their failures, which would, in my opinion and mine, be their learnings. But uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Why, why don't you see more videos of people's progress and possibly successes along with their failures? It's not very often you see that, but you see so many people jumping in feet first, head first, bare ground with trees littered about and maybe some, some cover crops and so forth. But anyway, I wanted to get your opinion on that. Thanks very much. Bye. Well, let's start off with the first question. Jack, in doing quail as a, as a meat crop and honestly an egg crop, honestly, as I look more and more at it, here's, here's my feelings on that. I would love to do that. I have a kabillion things that I would love to do, and I have to figure out of those kabillion things, what are the things that make the most sense for me? I still very much want to do quail. And I still am probably going to do quail. There are certain things that I want to get done before I go into setting up uh, a quail system. Uh, among them are the installation of my pond, the construction of a greenhouse. Those are two very, very important things to me. And finishing up my nursery, honestly, which has taken a back seat. And then I have a ton of plants that still need to go in the ground this year. And irrigation that still needs to go in the ground this year. And it's already summer and it's all of a sudden it's hot out. And I lost a lot of time that I would have got a lot of things done because it was so disgustingly muddy and gross that I couldn't do a lot of these things. So it's just been another one of those things where you, you have to pick what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. The real beauty I see in doing quail for us would be it would give me a very easy to harvest and easy to process meat crop, which is something I'm missing right now. Duck is a great product, but... It is an involved processing, and I'm going to have to either pay a processor or I'm going to have to make the time to do it. Quail, I can clean quail in you know less than a minute of burn. So it's a meat crop. I also think that the eggs would be highly marketable to our existing customer base. So I'd love to do it, just don't have the time to add that right now. And I don't think people really understand, because she doesn't like the camera, how much Dorothy does on this property from taking care of the animals and the plants and things like that, especially when I'm gone uh, for a week like I'm about to be gone for. So my hope is to set things up by the end of this year where I'm gone a lot less. Uh, and I think I'm not gone that much right now, but like not maybe gone less. To set it up so that, and that's what I've been working on this year, that when I am gone, The, the things that I usually do are doable by anybody really easily so we can get somebody to help or we can go away together like we're going to go this July. And I want everything in a very simple format, very easily to document and tell people what to do. I've been doing things too much so far on my mental ability to, to, to adjust on the fly. I have not made things really easy for someone else. So when I do the quail, I want it to be another jack, you know, Jack's mind gets every single aspect of this, but yet trying to explain to somebody else, it's a little more difficult. So it's an easy thing to do from a mechanical standpoint, but it's another thing to do from a time standpoint. So that's why. As to follow-up, I don't know that that's untrue or true. I think it's partially true depending on who you're looking at. I think there's an awful lot of people showing systems that are mature systems and semi-mature systems. I certainly do. If you go watch the Duck Chronicles, it's not just about ducks. I show all kinds of things uh, in that series that are going on on my property. I posted uh, updates on the swales and what have you. 
Uh, ben Falk doesn't do a lot of video work, but he's constantly providing um, photos of things that he's working on and are being done. If you get on the Regrarians group on Facebook, there's people constantly posting photographs and information about the projects that they're working on there, including videos. If you go to permacultureglobal.com, there's plenty of people that have posted updates to their projects there. I think with YouTube is you see Janie or Tommy or Bobby or Sue plant a bunch of trees. And, okay, well, what happens next? Well, you know, it takes time for all that stuff to establish. So I think that's one part of it. The other part of it is sharing your failures. I think if you're me, you're happy to show your failures because you got a lot going on, and it's what you do as a living. I think if you are a person who just gave something a shot and you have a failure and you only gave one thing a shot and that one thing failed, you're not so quick to do it. And unless they've completed the other side of failure, which is learning, then they're really... Because you say, well, when you fail, you learn. Well, only if you try again. So some people, I think, quit. And I think part of that problem is there's way too many YouTube permaculture students right now. And what I mean by that is a person just watches a whole bunch of videos, doesn't really take in the totality of what they're doing, and goes shotgun spray model without thinking about it and just plants a bunch of stuff and doesn't really think about, well, that's all the way in the back of the yard. How am I going to irrigate it? You don't need to irrigate with permaculture. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. If you haven't built a system to mitigate that need, then yeah, you do. So I think there are probably a lot of failures from this scatterbrained approach. Um, you know, not everybody that puts out YouTube videos on permaculture puts out things like I did with my permaculture series and practices and techniques where I actually go through a lot more of the processes and integrated whole. And then even when people do, the YouTube viewer that doesn't want to take a PDC, that doesn't want to do this, that doesn't want to do that, wants to just pick and choose, will grab a piece that makes, oh, hygge culture, that's all I need to do. Look at all these videos of hygge culture. They get a bunch of wood, they bury it, and they plant a bunch of crap into it. It doesn't grow. Or it grows and it gets sick, or it grows and it fails. And they, they say the hell with this, and they go back to true green chemlon thinking. Well, they didn't understand why they were building a hygge culture mound. They didn't understand what it would and wouldn't do, especially in its first year. They didn't understand the reason they were developed in the first place. They didn't seed the hell out of it with annuals for the first year. They didn't give the system time to improve. They didn't irrigate it when it wasn't mature enough to go without irrigation. Uh, they put it in in the middle of summer and planted things into it when it's 1,000 degrees out and said it's not supposed to need irrigation. Well, if you build it in July in the open, being pounded by sun, it's going to dry out. It's a mound. It's above ground. Of course it's going to dry out. And there's no water down there in the ground when the ground's at its driest state to be wicked up. The system hasn't had time to improve. The soil doesn't have any biological life. So there's all types of failures from people that just grab a technique and gravitate to the technique instead of understanding the system's level of thinking. So I think that creates failures without learning. And that person's not going to post an update. Then let's just think about what I said in response to the quail thing. People get busy. Like, the average person, unless they have a dedicated YouTube channel, if you don't see a 100 videos on it and that's not a thing for them, it's not either a hobby or a, at least a small-scale business thing, they, I don't have time for that. You know, they get excited, they put out the video of doing all their plannings, and unless it really gets to blow you away great, it, it might not be a failure, but it just might not be something they think that, hey, I need to go do that, or they keep thinking one day I'll get around to that. Look how many, if you just compare this to anything else. Look how many blogs there are out there. You find a person's blog with an interesting article. You look at it and you realize that article was posted three years ago. You go to the homepage, it's the most recent article on the blog. 
You go back and you look, there's five posts over four years, and two of them are, I know I should post more. And they just don't, it's not a business to them. They're not gonna, they're not gonna put the, you know, it takes effort. Ask Brian Black. With ideas tactical, basically, is a blog. It's like an online magazine, but it's run as a blog. It takes so much work. This is a guy with multiple employees in an office and all this stuff going on to maintain a blog like that. Now, you can maintain a blog without all of that stuff, but to make it a, a high revenue generating business like Brian's done, well, you got, that's what it takes. And even to just make it a daily, a daily thing, you have to care about it. You have to be passionate about it. So I think a lot of people get excited. They do this little video. Hey, we put in our trees. And then until it looks like something that they are happy with, they might not get around to doing it. Even then, they might not. I don't want anything I just said to discourage anybody from just planting shit, though. I think that most of us that are doing permaculture today are doing it small scale. We're not broad scale. Okay? We are doing it in suburban landscapes. Sheet mulch the whole damn thing. Put in some basic irrigation. Plant a bunch of things and don't fret over the 10 things that die. Be happy for the 10 things that live. And we have to get out of like this, we're going to save everything mindset for this to work. And we have to give it time. My system is nowhere near mature. And I still have, like, like I just said in the earlier question with my mulberries. I have no idea what the hell killed these plants. And I got another bush mulberry. Everywhere else, these things are planted. They're like, they're on, they're like, dun, 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 I don't care. I'm a honey badger tree. You attack me, I die, I come back. And then I got this one that's just turning yellow. It's also on the end of a row. I wonder if the dogs are peeing on it. It's got an ear of pants. So if the dogs are peeing on it, it's going in the ear of pants and concentrating at the roots. So I got to go get that ear of pants out of there today. Is that the problem? Or, you know, but if that's the problem, why is the Illinois mulberry on the end of the row that's dead on the top side? And I think it's done. I don't think it's going to make it. I think it's beyond saving. Why is the rootstock sprouting up bright, dark green rootstocks if it's dog pee that's killed it? Or is the dog pee not sufficient to kill it? Did the dogs pee on the graph? I don't know. And I think we have to be okay with our failures. But the only way you're, and I get depressed sometimes. I'm like, I plant all these grapevines and half of them look dead. Okay, that's got a little green on it. Whatever. I just have to look around and go, okay, well, there's, there's 20 pear trees on this property that all look like they were going to die last year that are beautiful, dark green, booming after they had a year to settle in. Maybe these grapes will come around next year. And be okay showing it. And I am. But not everybody's okay showing their failures. And they're not going to be. And we can't expect that people that are not in the business of doing this are going to take the time to show you what they're not happy with. Let alone even just show you everything they are happy with. And here's why I bring that up. And this is not a commercial for MSB. If you have a content producer that's producing content that you like and you want it to be around, and they have a way that you can support them, and you don't, and then that content goes away, guess what? It's because they weren't able to make it viable because the people that said they cared about it didn't care about it enough to support it sufficiently to keep it going. This is free market. This is okay, but it is something that we have to realize how much work goes in to the production of a podcast or a blog or YouTube videos. People who have never done it just see it as, well, once it's done, it's available forever. But you want it to keep coming back over and over again and being updated. It takes work. It takes dedication. Um, I'll give you an idea of how much dedication, because I just did a calculation that I'm, I'm pretty damn excited about. 
Today, I, I have, I'm completing episode 1589 of the Survival Podcast. This episode would, I'm trying to make long because I'm leaving for a week, so it gives you something to, to part out over days if you want to. Um, is is going to be three hours long in of itself. The, the production time on this show, eight to ten hours. Eight to ten hours of work to do this one show on a Friday. Um, not all of them take that long. When I, when I look back over the years from 45 minute long shows in the car that did not take 45 minutes to produce, trust me. Uh, the research, everything that goes with it. I come up with a, with a rough average number of hours that it takes me to do a show at six. Um, this is not just, I wake up, I'm gonna do a show today. You know, some, sometimes it doesn't take six hours to do that. But when I look at the background information, lining up guests, doing pre-show and investigations, um, doing research, reading a book that's eventually going to be... It's six hours. Six hours of podcasting an episode. So there's an old saying that one becomes a master of a craft when one has done their 10,000 hours at that craft. If I divide 10,000 by six, I get 1,666 hours and 66... uh, 1,666.66 episodes. So... Episode 1666, which I know some people go, oh, it's the son of the devil. There's the one there. Relax. Um, <laughs> uh, episode 1666 will officially be my 10,000 hours of podcasting. And that means that it's taken me to put in the time to get to that milestone. Um, seven years this June. In fact, June 20th will be our seventh year anniversary and I haven't done the math to figure out, but I don't think 1666 will come before the seven-year mark. It, it, it certainly won't. We're at 1589. It's almost 100 episodes, 80 episodes to go. So we're probably looking in August. So a little over seven years of dedicated effort and 10,000 hours have gone into the survival podcast from a development and production just from me. That's ignoring all the contributions made by the audience, the guests, the council members, etc. 10,000 hours. It's not a bragging thing. I want you to let that sink in to some of the things that you look at, not just TSP, but other things you look at online that have been with us for years, and what the dedication and work is that goes into something like that. Most people don't spend 10,000 hours creating anything. You might spend 10,000 hours working on something, you know, working in your job program, but, but to really to work from a creative level, from a completely giving birth to something, it, it's not easy. It's not easy, and... Um, I didn't really even think I was going to talk about this when I originally heard this question, but as I did, I realized that it's necessary that we understand that. You got somebody on YouTube that has a channel that you love, and they say, you know, you can contribute to my channel or buy my T-shirts or whatever. I mean, you you can't dedicate a portion of your income for life to that person. But, you know, parting it out a little for this person today, a little person that next month and whatever, if everybody that that watches, because I see channels die that have, you know, 100,000 subscribers. And part of it might be that the person running the channel doesn't know how to operate a business. But on the other hand, if 100,000 people really cared, I don't think that person would go away. I mean, if 100,000 people gave that person 50 cents a year, 50 cents a year, that person would make $50,000 a year. That's enough to keep a channel going for sure. Just think about that when it comes to supporting people doing things that you love, whether it's content or activities or whatever, 
it takes a lot of work, guys. Let's take one for the expert counsel now. This one for the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan. Today, Michael Jordan's going to have to be the wasp whisperer. This is from Josh. Josh says, what can I do to deter and remove wasps from my yard? We've been having issues with wasps, brown and red bodies and black wings, starting nests in our garden, shed, and under our swing set slide, all places that my kids regularly play. This small suburban backyard is only 50 feet by 50 feet. When I see them, Uh, when I see them or start a nest, I've been using automatic brake cleaner as an effective killer, but I'd like to deter them from coming to those areas altogether. Brake cleaner. Wow, that's tough. That's harsh. Um, Michael, what say you? How do we deter wasps? Hey, this is Michael Jordan here, and I want to welcome the TSP listeners on uh, Josh's question on how to eliminate his wasp problems. Wasp and hornets are the most commonly type that are building their nests where you don't want them. While these insects are often seen as pests due to their nasty stinging, they're actually important in the garden, both as a predatory insect as, as well as a pollinator. Uh, they eat other insects and destroy them, collecting the baby larva or insect to stuff in their brood chambers to feed their babies. And they're also a great pollinator. Uh, honeybees have a hard time pollinating tomatoes, but wasps uh, seem to do it fairly well, even though the tomatoes pollen and nectar is extremely acidity. Uh, the best way to deal with wasps is to minimize their numbers by deterring them from the area. Uh, do not keep any food, pets or human, around, laying around anywhere. Keep your drinks covered when outdoors. Keep the garbage cans tightly sealed. And if you see any fallen fruit by a nearby tree, shrubs, or even in the garden, pick it all up. The sweet juices attract wasps. Um, spraying and swabbing potential nesting areas that you see with mint, rosemary, geranium, or citronella oil, or hanging bunches of fresh-cut herbs will deter, deter it for queens and wasps to be sending up house there. Um, I think your best bet is to... If you have wasp problems, I think your best bet is to find a place that's the furthest part away from your yard. Start setting up sugar feeders, hummingbird feeders, two-liter bottles of soda, filling them up with sugar and moving the wasp mostly to that area. Uh, if you get the wasp there, you'll be able to start setting up wasp traps. Uh, wasp traps actually attract wasps, so if you get them 20 to feet away from regular walking areas or to the furthest part of your yard where you're not normally at, draw the wasps there and then start eliminating them slowly. That if you uh, keep killing them, you'll do good. Springtime is the most ideal time for killing wasps before the queen has established a colony. And once you get the trap set and the wasps mostly in that area, grab yourself some wasp and hornet spray, follow the instructions, and... Uh, saturate the nest. The the, the most aggressive uh, hornets that we have are the paper hornets. They come in big amounts and they're extremely aggressive. Uh, try to get them in the evening hours where they're mostly there. Saturate the entrance ways as well as the hive itself and let's eliminate them. Um, some good don'ts. Uh, don't knock the nest down unless it's very small at the very beginning to where you can just step on it killing everything at one time. If you knock down a large nest, uh, you'll get the Darwin Award. Just going to let you know that one. Uh, don't pour flammable liquids on any ground nests or any nests and light them on fire. 
uh, fires can get out of control, and you don't want any petroleum products seeping into the groundwater. Uh, don't try to bother boiling water or water in any type of these nests. It's just going to aggravate them out of the ground, and they'll just come out. You have to get uh, spray foam, sealing them off in the ground, and you might have to do a couple different entrance ways. Just like you, they have exit points. And do not use a vacuum cleaner. Uh, shop vacs are cool, but they shoot air out the other end. And once you're done, you'll have a whole bunch of pissed off uh, hornets and wasps in a shop vac that you'll have to eliminate again. If you have them in a closed area, such as a shed or shop, Raid makes a fogger specifically made for hornets, bees, and stuff like that, so you can fog sheds. Uh, those things work the best. Remember, they are can, a pollinator. They do eat other insects, but if they become something that is a nuisance or a menace, let's get rid of them. Move sugar water away from you, get them tracted to an area, and start eliminating them. Uh, this is Michael Jordan with the Bee Friendly Company on the Expert Council trying to help Josh out with his uh, wasp and hornet problem in his backyard. You guys have a blessed day. So that's a great answer. I have one more thing you can try, and our friend Howard Garrett comes back around today as another source of information. I heard a long time ago on his show, I thought that's where it was, and as I looked up information about it, I was able to find out that it was indeed his show. There is a shade of blue that you see many porch roofs, the inside. So when you, if you're under a porch and you look up, you'll see this blue. It's a sky blue. It's called haint blue, almost like H-A-I-N-T blue. There is a dark and a light, and people have reported good results with both, but seem to lead toward the light, which might be a little less pleasing for some people. It is not the greatest color in the world or anything like that. But you see it in a lot of porches. People claim that other shades of sky blue tend to work as well. Uh, I personally think the dark blue color works the best from an appearance standpoint. I've not tried this yet myself. I don't have enough of a loss problem to warrant it. Though I have one place that if they start showing up, I may try it. Apparently, they don't like the color. There are a lot of theories as to why. The most plausible would be that based on the way they see with their compound eyes, with like a billion eyes and one eye and things like that, that it might totally confuse them. And they think it's the sky, and they don't see it as a surface. So you might try some of these undermounts, because you know wasps usually tend to, to, to attach their nest up onto something. You might try painting it with this paint to see if it works. And what you could do is you have a place that's really like you're not going to see it. They go there. And a lot of times like under uh, like a, a deck or something is a place where they go. If you had a place where they constantly go and you painted it with this stuff and then gave it a shot and they didn't come back, it would, you know, probably tell you that it does work. Again, I don't, this is like two party, three party information here. I don't, I don't know if this works or not. I've just heard it and a lot of people have climbed in and called into Coward Show and said, yes, this does work. So it may work, again, whether or not you want to live with it or not. Now, the place for me that this will go if they start becoming a problem, my pool. They've not done it here to me, but other pools I've owned, they seem to love to go. I have an above-ground pool, and you have that rail. They love to go under there and then underneath my deck. 
my my god my, my goddaughter and niece uh, got one person. She's my niece and my goddaughter got stung pretty pretty harshly by some paper wasps that were under the deck that we had in Arlington. Uh, my son got stung in the head pretty good when he was a young kid uh, at our pool in Pennsylvania. Same thing. They're in the pool playing basketball and you upset the wasps and they and I don't want to kill anything. I don't have to. But yeah, wasps in certain positions they just got to go. So you might try paint blue paint either dark or light and see if that works and I'm not saying it does I'm saying it might be worth giving a shot to I have one more question and we'll wrap up for today Hey Jack, Richard, I'm guessing you're probably pretty burnt out talking about millennials but uh, I was listening to 1554 and you hit the nail on the head exactly like Mike Rose has been saying we told our kids for the longest time don't if you don't go to college you're going to end up becoming a mechanic you're going to have a grease on your face or whatever but uh, you're right, there's a lot of, of uh, you know, satisfaction from finishing a job like that. Uh, I have family members that are spite, uh, telephone fiber splicers, making six figures a year, working, uh, working basically six months out of the year with their schedule. Uh, when I worked telephone work, there was uh, a job I did with some linemen. And those guys start out at probably mid-50s in the city that they were at. And once you, uh, as an apprentice, once you actually worked your way up the linemen with overtime and all that that happened in the winter, you were probably closer to eighty or 90000 once you got to, to be a full lineman. But they said their biggest problem was getting kids just to come on as apprentices, apprentices and then to even just stick around and show up on time, not come in drunk, not come in uh, hungover, not show up at all. So I think uh, you're right. The biggest thing we need to do is start pushing our kids towards, you know, what do you want to do, what do you, uh, you know, what's available to you, and uh, not saying that college is the end-all, be-all. So anyway... Thanks again, Jack. Uh, great point. Yeah, I, I, I think we've definitely, and I don't think this is a millennial issue. I think this is a societal issue. We've lost the value of skilled trades. And, you know, that's a shame. It really is. And if we can take skilled trade along with business acumen, these are the areas where people have some of the lowest borders to entry for becoming self-employed and eventually having their own businesses. And it's interesting you bring up telephone splicing. So my background was in, in data and, and, and voice communications, and I came in through the cabling industry. And that led to sales positions and got into hardware and, and, and technology and computer testing and things like that. And then that led to switching over to marketing and, and, and developing an entire career path up of that and, and doing all of that uh, from the age of 21 to 40. Uh, not even 40. I mean, I, I was, what, 38 when I, I started doing this show full-time, I guess, somewhere around that range. So 18 years, developed two separate career paths um, that all began with entering in as a trade-level person. And, you know, people think, well, like that's good money and all. When I took that job, it was 12 bucks an hour. $12 an hour. And initially, I took a job as a contractor for MCI, and, and that included having to, to figure out how to, like, live on the road. I, I would have made $6 an hour in income and $6 an hour in per diem. That, and I, I did that for like a year. I eventually got a raise up to like, like $16 an hour. Now, this is a long time ago, but still, it didn't go very far. It was not about the money. It was about getting a start. And then that led to uh, getting into a cable contracting job where I didn't have to travel anymore. And though I made a little bit less an hour, I had more money to keep. That led to, to getting specialized in optical fiber. And then that led to all the other things I, I mentioned. Um, because they decided to do something with it. And I think that's the other thing. Like, There's a lot of these trades that you can become really, really skilled at and move up in income, and there's a lot of these trades that are entry points into 
other related industries and advancement in operations management or whatever, inventory control management, all of these companies that do this stuff, they need people that do things like inventory management, right? People, you look at these contracting agencies, they have huge investments in tools. There's a profession just for some of these bigger companies in managing and controlling the issuance and return of these tools. It's, you're not going to make a fortune doing it, but it's a job. And these are the type of jobs that you're going to have the least amount of technology replacement in. The very high-end jobs are getting replaced with software. So unless you're in the software development area, and that's getting outsourced like crazy, right, you, you have a problem there. When I worked with Syrian, the, 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 the product that we developed, uh, the software, eliminated jobs, Network analyst jobs, high-level expensive jobs. The computer could do it better, faster, and more accurately. In fact, it was one of the hardest reasons to sell it because in that instance, you're selling the product to the person whose job might be eliminated or at least parts of their department might be eliminated. So that was a challenge for us. And low-end jobs, I mean, you're going to be ordering all your fast food from kiosks in no time at all, like the low-level jobs. But you're not, like right now, there are two or three guys that are in my kitchen And they're staining and sealing the cabinets that were just installed. The cabinets were custom-made by a custom cabinet maker. And then Monday, we have people coming to install granite countertops. Okay, all of those guys make decent money doing this stuff, right? And all of those, some of, some of the people we're dealing with are like business owners, and some are employees of those business owners. But everybody in that chain, if they decide to make the effort, could take that into some level of profession where they actually have own an ownership stake or develop their own business models, right? And the people we're dealing with are having trouble keeping up the timeline because they have so much work, they don't know what to do with themselves, And their biggest problem is finding more people that they can trust enough to hire to do a good job. So a lot of these guys could take more work on if they had the people with the skills and the knowledge and the work ethic and the personal ethos to be able to say, okay, go complete this job and not have to be there overseeing them. I mean, there's so many things like that available in the world today, and the people that can do it are in decline. And we're continuously increasing the number of people to do jobs that are declining in demand at the same time. This doesn't make any sense. And the reason I say that this is far longer term thinking than just affecting the millennials is because I remember when I joined the Army. When I joined the Army, I was 17 years old. I had good grades in school. I had an uncle who said, I'll get you a job working at Boeing. And I said, I, I don't want to go work at a machine shop at Boeing. That's not what I want for my life. And he was like, yeah, fine, whatever. And um, But then when he heard I joined the Army, he said, well, oh, shit. Like, first of all, it was just terrible that you joined the Army. Then he's like, well, he got over that and said, uh, well, what are you going to do in the Army? I said, I'm going to be a mechanic, a diesel mechanic. And he's like, you're throwing your life away. You can have any job you want, you're going to do that. Like, it was a horrible thing to be a diesel. So I'm going to learn how to work on, you know, $200,000, thousand dollars $400,000 pieces of equipment. Um, and if I decided I really liked that, I mean, I could have came out, went the ASC certification path, and 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 worked for I mean these mining companies, these construction companies. There's people that's that's it's good paying work. And while it's not work I would want to do now, you know, I was seriously tempted as a as a as a young guy in my early 20s to go that path because it sounds like a lot of money when you've never made more than $16,000 a year to be able to make $50,000, $80,000, and it's not bad money. And people with that kind of income have good lifestyles. These are all options that are available to people. You don't want to be a mechanic and have grease on your face. Why not? What if you like to do that? 
And the reason we're seeing it in millennials so much is they're the ones suffering for it. They're the ones suffering for this thinking. Over the last 20 years, and maybe 30 years, though the thinking was in place, there were enough people still uh, immune to it, right? You tell me I don't want to do this, but my dad did this, my grandfather did this, I'm looking at their houses, I want to do this too. So they still went, but they told their kids. It took multiple generations of brainwashing to totally sell the idea. And then the other side was, as the, the economy really did do very well, from let's say 85 to 2005. There were some dips in there, but overall, that overall economic boom was pretty good. And not just the stock market price, but the job creation in high tech, in office jobs, in service jobs and things like that that were professional level, professional layer things. So with that, all of us that bought into it, those of us that, unlike me, said the hell with it, I'm going to do what I want to do, that did buy, had a place to go. Well, all of those seats sort of got filled. A lot of the stuff went out of the country. A lot of it got eliminated. This is what they said back in 2008, that you will never see the employment that was lost come back. There'll have to be new jobs created. Because they didn't go, the jobs didn't go overseas. And the ones that did, you're not bringing back here, by the way. But a lot of the jobs in the economic crisis in 2008 and 2009, those of you who've been listening long enough know, I said, they're gone. They're gone. They didn't go overseas. They didn't get exported. When the, when the financial crisis hit, what companies did this time around was look at how bloated they'd become and cut 10 to 20% of their workforce. People that had 10 employees cut one or two, right? People that had 100,000 cut 10 to 20,000. And they did not cut people based this time around on 10, who had been there the longest, who had tenure in that kind of mentality or whatever. They said, who do we not consider critical? Who can we send out the door? So it wasn't even about, well, they're a good worker or whatever. It was cold, and it was calculating because companies saw their coffins this time around. Like, if we don't fix this, we're going to die, right? So they said, if the, if the doors won't close because we get rid of this person, get rid of them. I don't care if they've been here one year or 15 years. I don't care. If they are not critical to the operations, management, And, and you know marketing and sales components of this company get rid of them, and that doesn't mean they were bad people. That means the companies created jobs over time that they didn't really need to create. And if you happen to end up in that particular chair when the music stopped and there was no chair to sit down in, you were out just like musical chairs. And so then that happened. Now what did that do? That took a whole bunch of people that were in their 50s and 60s and made them go to lower-end employment to find any job that they could. Because when you're 50, 60 years old and you lose your job right or wrong, a lot of people don't want you. Why would I hire you when I can hire this energetic 35-year-old? Maybe they don't have your experience, but I don't need your experience for this job. This is a mid- to, to, to lower-upper-grade position. That person has all the experience they need for this position. They have more energy than you. They're a better long-term investment than you. And I can beat them up more than I can beat you up because they'll take my shit because they're still on the way up and you already were above this, so you know better. So those people actually ended up taking lower-level positions. They ended up working for a kid like me back in the 90s already. I had guys working for me that were a couple days older than my dad when I was pulling cable. And I was making $14 an hour. What do you think they were making if they were working for me? Guys, One guy had retirement from Texas Instruments, but he still needed some money. 
right? So they end up in those positions. And then all the people that are in their mid-20s, mid-30s, early 40s, with all that energy and experience and knowledge, end up competing for those good quality mid- to upper-level jobs. And there's a surplus of those. So employers get spoiled and go, I can get a guy with 15 years, with a good track record that just happened to, you know, we laid some people off a couple of years ago. We're not hiring those people back, but now that we're growing again, we have this new position. Why the hell would I give this to a, a millennial college grad that maybe did a one-year internship somewhere when I can get a guy with 10 years behind him that's still a go-getter? So that sucked those jobs away from the, from the millennials. So they got hit at the entry level, the mid-level, and the upper level all at the same time. And yet they're all sitting around with degrees. Many of the degrees are completely irrelevant to reality, but many of the degrees are good. There's, I mean, don't think that every kid looking for a job has a degree in bitterness studies. There's kids out there with good quality, relevant degrees, business administration, marketing, engineering, etc., that are not finding that first good job to develop the experience to become more marketable down the road. And part of it is, where's all the people to do the trade work? The trade work has always been the backbone of the economy. The trade work is the blue-collar middle class. When you have people employed that are making shit happen in the real world and they spend money, that spurs all the other discretionary spending that people do. I hire a plumber because I need my, my toilet to flush and I can't fix it. Or I need my sink to work and I can't fix it. Or I'm putting in a house and I have to. right? I can't do my own plumbing. I need a license or whatever. And that is, a, that is non-discretionary spending to a large degree. Do I get a new house? Nah, but in the end, people have to live somewhere, right? So the apartment complex hires the plumber to fix the plumbing because they have an obligation to the resident, etc. Okay, and and that creates a cash flow, and that leads to discretionary spending. I've saved money. I've lived here three years. I want a new. I want a new kitchen. So I spend money to have that done. That that's also done by trade trade worksmen. They spend money. They stimulate the economy. Think about that. And you've you, you you've not only hurt that segment of society to the point where there's a, a, a labor shortage there. You've also driven down the rates with a mentality of that. It, see, th this is the other side of this, and this is why I'm going a little long on this for the last piece today. You, I don't think people understand the real reason the incomes have suffered in there while at the same time the la there's a labor shortage. We've devalued the work, so we've devalued what we're willing to pay for it. Do you understand that? If you're telling people, hey, look, if you don't go get a good college degree, you're going to have some loser job framing houses or putting roofs on or building cabinets or installing tile or working as a mechanic, then what happens to that person when they do get a job and they are successful and somebody tells them what it costs to have any of that stuff done? They start saying, screw that. That's, that's a loser job. Why should I pay that guy that much to do that work? And... In the end, a business has to figure out how do I operate at a, at a cost that I actually will get yeses from my customers. And we start driving prices down, and that drives down labor rates in that market. And it drives down the quality of the materials in that market. And that's a hell of a lot more to do with the, with the suppression of wages than is, oh, there's illegal immigrants that do the work. That's a cop-out. That's an absolute cop-out. Because if that was the issue, we'd be paying them more than we are. 
It's not just because they're willing to do it for less. Because in the end, the guy running the business wants to make a profit. He's going to charge as much for the job as he thinks is fair and he can get. And they're driving their own pricing down because the consumer doesn't want to pay for the value because the consumer no longer sees the value because we've told the consumer that the people that do the work aren't worth a damn. And it's bullshit. And we're destroying the fabric of our country with this mentality. This is destroying pride in hard work. We talk about hard work in school, but it's not hard work in the way that we used to mean the word. Oh, he studies hard. Well, what's he studying? Bullshit? 80% of the information that he's studying and working hard on, he'll never use for the rest of his life? That's not hard work. That's improper work. You don't want to have to use a shovel. Why not? You don't want to have to lay bricks. Why not? I'm not saying everybody should go into trades, but why do we have to crap on that? Do you not live in a house? Did your house get farted by a magical unicorn? Or did somebody have to, to, to sweat to build that house so you could live in it? Think about that. When we crap on the trades that are out there, if it wasn't for the mindset of valuing hard work and seeing a trade as a valuable thing to do, I wouldn't have anything that I do today. And you wouldn't have a survival podcast. Because all of the, the, the stuff that I talk about in business, the steps that led me up to those opportunities came through trades. They came through being a mechanic and then learning about troubleshooting and then getting out of the military and then finding an opportunity because I was willing to work hard and travel and learn. And I was willing to pull cables into roofs of buildings and learn about color codes and punching things down. And eventually going, and see that's the thing, we have to start teaching people that just because you come into an entry level of a trade doesn't mean that that's all that there is. You need to be seeking to learn, to advance, to do more all the time. Always teaching yourself, always learning, and not fearing sweat and bleeding a little bit and getting dirty. That's what built this country. It sickens me, honestly, that we are so demented in our thinking now that we're telling our children that, well, you don't want to have to do that kind of work. What are you afraid? It might build some character in them. That they might have some character and then they might start thinking that they want certain things for themselves and then they might start thinking for themselves and then they might put down their video games and start listen, stop listening to your bullshit and stop being so easily manipulated and start saying I can do something for myself and start valuing themselves and their families. Once again, is that what scares the people in charge? Are they afraid? Are they cowering that if people actually value hard work, they'll value themselves? That's what I think it is. I think they don't want you to value hard work because they don't want you to value your ability to do it, and that makes you dependent, that makes you easy to control, that makes you easy to lead, if they even knew how to lead. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we 
Yeah.